Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of History of Westeros Podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Of course, since this episode is marked show only, we will not be discussing the books, other than maybe the occasional reference to something that I need to point out to, to make sure everybody knows that I'm not referring to something that happens later, or to know that I'm not making a prediction based on something that I know is coming. I'm not going to do that at all. So if you hear me making a prediction... It's based on something that it's, 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 it's with incomplete information. I'm not going to make any sneaky guesses based on something that I might know about. I'm not going to not going to pull any tricks like that. We have a couple of cool things that we're going to try to adjust with with regards to our format. It's come to my attention over the years doing this podcast that there's a lot of you out there, a lot of you listeners slash viewers who don't have a regular outlet for discussing the show and the books, and that. That's unfortunate. It's fun to be able to talk about the books and, and the show, and and so I want to make this show more of an outlet for you guys that have that problem. So we're going to try to add a few more interactive qualities to the show. We're going to start this episode by responding to some questions that we've been receiving throughout the season, most recently uh, over the weekend. Mostly we're going to focus on questions that relate to this episode, of course. So we're going to be taking a few of those in between the uh, as we move from location to location. So hopefully you guys enjoy that, and we'll be mentioning names. So if you want to get your name said on the show, ask us a good question, or tell, or make a prediction, and we might put it up here. Now, when I first watched this episode, my impressions were uh, that the, there wasn't as much going on in the episode, but I think I was just a little tired. And as we thought about it more and watched it again, it really started to pick up, and I just realized there was a lot going on. There's a lot of interesting themes and motifs going on in in this episode, a lot of unity between the plot lines, and it's the kind of stuff that, um, as from as I still come from a book reader perspective, some of these things I miss because I'm expecting to see certain things, and I'm not looking necessarily for the things that are new. Sean, your perspective is different because you are, you know, you've only read the first book, so you don't have expectations based on what you think is coming, other than you know your own guesses. So, how did this episode strike you? Oh, and of course, good to have you back again. Sean. <laughs> yes, good to be here. Uh, I, uh, I this episode, I will say, kind of grew on me. I uh, I watched all the episodes at least two or three times before the podcast, and this one I watched four times. And uh, there were some elements of this one that, like, kind of like I've mentioned in the past, I was like, a little frustrated with, and I don't ever know if I'm frustrated with the show or the writers or the characters within or. Humanity in general, you know. Uh, Humanity in general. <laughs> but this one, I feel like, uh, uh, the more I thought about it, the more I started to, to, to recognize uh, growth of characters and, and uh, I don't know how to say it, symbols or illusions that the, I feel like the authors or filmmakers or whatever are trying to, to convey to us. And uh, it really stirred me a lot. I, I, I'm kind of excited to talk about a lot of different things from this episode. Okay, well, let's uh, let's get a couple of things out, of, quick things out of the way before we dive into the meat of the material. Thanks to Watchers on the Wall for their coverage of the TV show all year round. They are one of the best sources, maybe the best source for up to the minute news on actors and plot developments, shots from different locations. They gave us a lot of things to get excited about in the off season, and their in season coverage is great as well. So I wanted to make sure everybody is aware of them. Most of you probably are, but just in case. We're big fans. Also, thanks to people supporting us on Patreon and regular donators as well. You can become a part of the History of Westeros army by going to 
patreon.com slash history of westeros and pledging your support at any level that will that includes benefits like getting episodes early getting your name mentioned from time to time or regularly getting access to our scripts and lots of other fun stuff like that so let us look at the locations for this episode there were a couple of locations that weren't in the episode um, but uh which is of course that's a regular thing with the show there's almost so many things to cover even it's so weird to think about that almost it's like daenerys is such a major character and you would think that most like a tv show that has a character like that actually she's not in an episode from now now and again that's just the you know 10 years ago that would be unheard of to have like one of the main three characters just miss an episode regularly you know but that's the nature of Game of Thrones. It's one of the great things about it. Um, so much to keep track of. There wouldn't be so many people analyzing it if it wasn't so much fun and, and so deep. So we have the, we also have, or rather, we have the Wall. We have the House of Black and White. We have King's Landing. We have Volantis. We have Winterfell and the Road to Winterfell. I suppose we could call it a couple scenes near Moat Kalen. And so there's no Marine and there's no Dorn. But this episode is is less about the characters or less about the locations than some of the others. It is a bit more about a lot of individual one-on-one interactions and, of course, these themes that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Let me, let me get specific. I thought there were four major themes in this episode. Two of them are a bit related. Those are service and submission. They're very similar in a lot of ways. And in some of these examples and some of these characters, it's going to seem like the same thing. But in some cases, it will be distinct. Sub- service versus submission. Keep that in mind. Also... Identity. Identity questions are a huge part of this episode. And finally, one, one thing that, that you pointed out specifically to me as well, Sean, is really a really good catch. Revenge. Revenge, a very big part of this theme as well. And, and some people's identity is tied up in their revenge or their service. So these, thing, these themes are really big. They per, they're pervade all the scenes, basically, in this entire episode. And we'll be speaking to them quite a bit. We'll start with The House of Black and White. This was a great way to open the episode, I thought. Uh, really creepy. All the, the I loved seeing all the, the different gods carved in stone and just the, the mood and the music were really great. What were your what were your first impressions? I I am still making my mind up on House of <laughs> Black and White. I'll say uh, uh, in fact I want to go ahead and point out I've had a, some thoughts from last week's episode. Uh, okay. since we did the podcast even. One of which was what the heck was Jake and Hagor doing on the road in a cave with common thieves in the first place when Arya first came about him? I, uh, that's something that that's one of my friends at work. By the way, I'm lucky. I do have lots of different groups of people I get to go. <laughs> you know, I, I, on one hand, I like to be able to marathon a show, but I also appreciate the time between to like ponder it and talk to other people watching it and so on. And um, and uh, one of my friends at work pointed out to me uh, that that question, like, what was he doing there in the first place? And Generally speaking, I don't want people to spoil things for me, but vaguely, the closest answer anyone has given me is, like, destiny, or no one knows, or yet to be seen, or something like that, which I guess is okay, but I can't help but wonder if, especially when I'm already sort of wondering what's, how it's Arya tying into the bigger picture of this song of ice and fire, what is, how she seems to be getting more disconnected from it, you know? Yes. And, uh, but I wonder if that... Is she getting so disconnected? Maybe there's just this big hole we're missing as to why she was discovered by Jake. Well, how, seems they, like how she their paths crossed. Yeah. Right. Seems <laughs> like she discovered him, but maybe he was discovering her or uh, planting himself to be discovered. I'm not sure. But anyway, there's certainly a lot of mysticism surrounding this character and this house of black and white. And uh, 
there's one thing I kind of wish I recognized those statues. I feel like they were trying to feature them. And later on, I think she even already even says, I see the drowned gods, I see the... Well, the, couple, I, I can but... name them for you. We had okay, yeah. our, our, our one of our watchers slash listeners. It's, the, it's weird having people watch you on YouTube and on iTunes. I don't know whether to say listeners or watchers or <laughs> fans. Anyway, one of those people, Bill Davis III, he linked us through Twitter uh, to a, a, a graphic that listed which gods were which. I knew most of them already, but there were a couple I couldn't make out either and wasn't sure which the show was saying was which. We, we got to see the Lion of Night which is a god of E.T., very far, far east, past the Dothraki Sea, almost certainly never going to play a role in the series. Okay. There's also the Black Goat of Kohor, which is... Kohor is not that far from Bravos uh, and Norvas, and um, may, kind of far from Pentos, but not super far. But I don't. it's unlikely the Black Goat or that religion will, will play a big role. I think it's mostly backdrop. The Stranger was in there, and the Stranger, of course, is one of the seven. Uh, the, the Weeping Lady... Who I'm not familiar with the Weeping Lady, uh, but apparently the Weeping Lady, when you mention her name, a cat appears. Um, and uh, but then there was the then Relor was the fiery heart there, and then there was uh, the Drowned God, which is of course the God of the Ironborn. Now Arya Arya asked the question, you know, where's the God of Death? And Jaken basically says, well, there is no image of that. That's the, the God of Death is kind of over everyone. That's all the gods bow to the God of Death because everyone dies basically. So, we uh, <laughs> we really this this we really have um, apparently cats really like talks about gods. Now, so but to get back to what you were saying, what was your your impression on those different gods and and that mysticism and and the scene in general? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, one I, I appreciate the the depth they present by having those imagery and and I kind of know there's something behind that. Those aren't just random statues of the picture. I know this show and this world is deep enough that there's some story and some meaning behind all those. So I was curious to ask about it. Yeah. Um, but I'll also say I felt a frustration with this scenario, which I'm sure Arya also feels. Uh, and I feel this in a lot of these kind of scenarios where characters kind of being taken under someone's arms and there's all this mystery shrouding it and they're going through some kind of training and Maybe I could be wrong, and maybe it's different from more extreme cults or whatever, but I don't feel that's the best way to indoctrinate and train <laughs> someone. I feel like people perform better when they're given instruction and meaning and treated with respect, and she's just like, I even brought up the example, you know, she, they're just like, you know, sweep the floor, and she just sweeps the floor for days and has no idea what's going on around her, and at least Mr. Miyagi <laughs> no, who is telling you know, wax the car, paint the fence or whatever, but at the end of it, he's like, oh, those are the motions for these blocking moves or whatever at least some value and in the meantime the fence was painted and the car was clean you know <laughs> but what the heck i i just feel like it Ari would be, do better if if jake had just told her look we need to test you we need to see if you're committed i'm gonna have you do a bunch of na stuff you need just to follow instructions you know what i mean i and i I don't know. I, it's a, a common issue I have with these types of scenarios. It is a bit um, of a trope, and, and and Game of Thrones is supposed is supposedly a big breaker of tropes. So it could be that this is just yeah. a trope. It could be that the trope will get break, broken later. They're setting it up very standardly, and then later it'll they'll do something. Um, of course, they're already doing some things differently from the book. So again, I'm not making a prediction. I don't know if they'll how they'll handle it. Whether they'll be more tropey, or whether they'll break the tropes, or they'll do something else entirely. Regardless, I started off with this sort of like, eh, kind of like, 
frustration with how it was being handled. <laughs> but in the end, I realized that that's minor. What really matters is Arya's growth here. Her yeah. kind of letting go of who she was or deciding if she can let go of who she was. Uh, and that's a big thing that Jacob brings up. He says, she says, I'm, I'm ready to serve, I'm ready to serve. And he says, a girl is ready to serve herself. And he points out that, look, no, you're not ready to serve. Here's, our, here's our, one of our themes, service. Submission to the religion of the uh, submission to death in, in an essence, uh, yeah. in a way, and and her thoughts of revenge, which is the you know the other main theme there, and she's basically being forced to choose between submission and revenge, in a lot of ways, and or serve, and she's having to do service to get there, and as you pointed out, the service seems kind of mindless at this point, <laughs> um, so she has to also lose her existing identity. She has to give up Arya Stark. Jaken points out, you know, how is it that no one comes to be surrounded by Arya Stark's things? <laughs> Which is, I, there's a lot of great dialogue there. Some of the dialogue I thought was a little too lacking in mystery and subtlety. They're just talking about, I'm going to be a faceless man. You know, and it's, it, it's presented a little differently and it kind of throws me off a little bit. But, but, but besides that, that's my only role... Uh, and that's a pretty minor criticism, I suppose. But I, I really like the the dialogue and the comebacks and how how he quickly he is able to set her straight about what is going on and how she's doing it wrong. And then there's a scene with this younger seeming girl who kind of seems to be unhappy with her presence there. She's hitting her and you know says you know you're lying. And she mentioned that they're playing the game of faces. And that's just kind of glazed over a bit. I assume they'll talk about that more. But it's it's like, a, you know, you're, you're supposed to practice lying. And the other person is uh, supposed to be able to tell whether you're lying based on your face. And so she, you can tell. So she doesn't, she's not, when she says she's no one, she doesn't really feel it and mean it yet. She's not. She, she's what she was she's supposed not to say. Yeah, she's yeah. not convincing. She says she's nobody. But she's not, she can tell that she doesn't mean it. And. This is great. Maisie Williams, again, has her, her great facial expressions and her great acting in a vacuum with no one else around, her, her, her crying, almost crying, and where she's throwing all her stuff in the water and losing her identity. And that's very symbolic, especially when paralleled with this pool in, in the House of Black and White. You drink from it, you die. Uh, it's some sort of poison in there, I suppose. And she's just kind of throwing all her stuff into the, into the river, the lagoon, uh, the, I guess. <laughs> and... But she can't quite throw a needle in, can she? Yeah, I, I appreciated that. Uh, I and I wonder on some level if that'll be. Maybe she won't make it through the training. Maybe some some level she'll get to, and Jake will be like, "You didn't throw away the sword. I'll never throw away the sword." You know, <laughs> I, I wonder, or if she'll have to go revisit it, or I'm not sure. But it it was definitely a featured moment they wanted to make sure that we saw that you know and it, of course it again speaks to her identity she's unwilling to completely give up on being Arya and on who she was and that sword i think in in some ways it does represent her desire to get revenge i think she's gonna try to keep hold on to that i don't know if she's ready to let that go so we'll just have to see now the final little bit in that i wanted to cover in this scene unless you had something else as well, is, is they're working with the body. And I thought that was very interesting as well. And I think that what's kind of being done there is she's submitting to the idea of death and serving it up close, being getting used to just working with a corpse, you know, just saying, hey, this is supposed to be kind of ordinary. You know, most people will be creeped out. I think, like, nearly everyone here, 
uh, doesn't want to touch a dead body or wash a dead body or mess with that. And that's just kind of a natural human reaction. I think Arya's a little, a little part of Arya is probably not so happy about it, but she, she jumped in and did it. And she asked that question, what happens to the bodies after, you know, and the girl just kind of looks at her. She didn't really respond to anything else, but she's kind of stared at her when she asked that question. Yeah. So that's like, whoa, like maybe we're about to, maybe there's some mystery with that, or maybe we'll find that out later. Any other thoughts on the House of Black and White before we move on? Uh, not particularly on Any the House thoughts of Black on Arya? and White. Some thoughts about Arya that maybe I'll get back to. It'll be connected with some other stuff later. Okay. Well, let's move on to King's Landing. A lot of things happening here and a lot more questions of identity, submission, and service, and a little bit of revenge as well. We have Tommen and Marjorie's wedding, and the prelude to that is seeing Cersei carried in her litter through the streets and everyone's chanting for Marjorie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this sets up a lot of the things in the rest of the episode where Cersei is constantly falling behind Marjorie. Marjorie's one-upping her constantly and beating her out. And this all touches back on Maggie the Frog scene where Cersei is thinking about being replaced and having her children kind of taken away from her and or dying. And it's just happening. All these scenes around King's Landing are reflecting that until the end where she starts to try and make some moves that maybe seem a little questionable. Maybe maybe they're going to backfire, maybe not. But starting where we were here, the crowd calls for Marjorie. And here comes our first user question, or listener question, where Archmaester Drew asks, who is the Kingsguard now? We see all these Kingsguard knights, but we know some of them whom are dead. Jamie is not around. Barristan left a long time ago. The Hound has left. It hasn't really been touched on. So we wonder if maybe that'll be brought up later. To, to answer the question, honestly, I don't know. They haven't really <laughs> described who's in the Kingsguard at this point. I, I, I could I could say who's in the Kingsguard at the books at this point, time, but that, that probably wouldn't... That, that's not really appropriate at this point, uh, and, and it's not really necessarily relevant to what the show is doing. So... That's an open question. Hopefully they'll answer that. We'll, we'll see. Maybe some of you out there, maybe we missed something. If any of you out there know something about the, the current Kingsguard, apart from Marin Trant and Jamie, I don't know who the other five are. I, I guess that's something that kind of got glossed over a little. We'll have to see. I have noticed that they keep Marin Trant in the mix. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if his character is going to become more prominent or if they just want to maintain our knowledge of the Kingsguard, a character that we can recognize. Somebody whatever, that we know, yeah. He gets <laughs> a... Scenes with no helmet on and a couple lines per episode. That's true. Consistently, I think. That's a good point. They're kind of keeping him in the fold, so to speak. So we so we have a first. I think it's a first in, in Game of Thrones where there's a wedding where both participants are happy. Not everyone in the, the crowd is happy. Cersei is not so happy. But, I mean, the gr- bride and the groom are both pretty happy about this marriage. <laughs> That's, that We don't see too many of those things. And then we do, there's some sort of tragedy, like... Everyone dies, you know, <laughs> or at least a few people die. This is a wedding that pretty much went off without any hitches, without anyone dying, without any, you know, embarrassments. So that was, hey, all right, a, a kind of a high point for now. But it's from characters that are a little on the outside. But the bedroom scene I thought was really interesting. We see Marjorie is just becoming a master manipulator if she wasn't already. She's really showing her chops. The scene with Tommen in bed where she just, she does both things. She emasculates him by speaking to Cersei as, oh, Cersei's always going to protect you. And she's going to, and he's like, I'm I'm a man now, you know. And she doesn't, you know, she's very careful not to, like, make it insulting. It's very subtle, but he definitely gets the message. Yeah. 
And uh, did you th- what do you think about those undertones in, in the scene? Oh, it was really good. It was, uh, it's another example of when I'm not sure whether or not to like Marjorie or to like the writers. Because <laughs> <laughs> someone wrote that and they did a good job with it. Uh, yeah, that was really cool. <clears throat> And now, and this is where it gets, this is where I, I make a, a bit of a funny observation. Cersei is desperately trying to hold on to Tommen to keep her, maybe not control, but to keep her sway over him, to keep, to keep him, uh, to, to matter to him in a lot of ways. And she is fighting an uphill battle because even like the biggest mama's boy, how are you going to compete with Marjorie Tyrell when yeah. you're like 12, you know, like she's more experienced, extremely beautiful and knows what she's doing, you know, and is and is good at manipulating. So, like, this, he's discovering the, sex for the first time. I mean, it, she you can't. are the king too. It's it, never mind Marjorie. Everyone is like, "What do you want? What do you want? We'll do whatever you want, sir." You know. So, he's definitely at some point, even if he's good uh, fundamentally, uh, he's gonna become assertive. Yeah. You know, he's Cersei just can't compete with that. She cannot compete with with what Tommen's got, <laughs> with what Marjorie's <laughs> offering right now. And you can see that she's kind of grasping a straw. She makes some very weak attacks on her while they're walking together. She's like, oh, does she think she's smart? I can't really tell. You know, she sure does smile a lot, like a doll, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just really weak. You know, she's trying to, like, bring Marjorie down in Tommen's eyes, but it is not working because he just tried to break the record, <laughs> you know, with her the night before. And he's just discovering sex. It's like, come on, you're, you're, this is hopeless, Cersei. Tommen is totally bought into Marjorie right now, and I, I am guessing that what Marjorie wants, she's going to get, uh, unless it's something really out there. Um, Marjorie so far is, is really winning the battle of Marjorie versus Cersei over Tommen, and whether that remains will 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 remain in place, whether that will, things will continue that way, well, we'll just have to wait and see, but for now, Cersei's just looking for other other angles and other things she can do. You could tell that she, I could tell, you know, the, like the look in her eye, you could tell she was a little sad. She didn't really know what to say. She's like, wouldn't you be happier at Casterly Rock? And, and, and you could kind of like, I'm just thinking to myself, Cersei's thinking, you, my son doesn't understand me at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, can you really, can any of you really imagine Cersei meekly going back to Casterly Rock? And her own son is suggesting this. It just she, shows, yeah. She might, I can <laughs> imagine her having gone back to Casterly Rock at a point, but not after she just sent Kevin back. You know what I mean? Like, maybe if she was going back to actually take charge of Casterly Rock. Yeah. But I think she already, like, burnt that bridge, you know? And in the back of her head, Maggie the Frog again is coming out. She's being pushed aside. The younger, more beautiful queen is totally getting the, you know, getting the power over her and her son. And she's, she's losing her hold on court. And that leads us to the actual confrontation between Cersei and Marjorie. It's not really a confrontation, but there's so much said between the lines, so much subtlety, and Marjorie is just needling her relentlessly, puts her down about her age, about her drinking, about how she's going to be a grandmother, how Tommen is just, you know, super infatuated with her. and Clarifying everything. her role, queen mother, right? Not queen, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Which is another question of identity. Yeah. Another yeah. identity question being raised. We have the king. Tommen is... is being confronted with his own identity about being a mama's boy and being now you're the king you have to take charge and marjorie's bringing that to this forefront she also challenges cersei on the same things like oh yeah are you the queen dowager the queen mother what do we (laughs) call that (laughs) and actually later in the episode i believe littlefinger calls her the queen mother Uh, so (laughs) it's just funny (laughs) it's like oh so that's the one we use apparently and 
So I, I think it's really, really good. And Cersei managed to keep her cool, but you can tell she's just seething. And then when she leaves, they're still they're laughing. It's oh, just, yeah. she's oh, just... It was, oh, it was brutal. Yeah. Uh, you almost I, feel bad for Cersei, which yeah. is really, really hard <laughs> to do. Like, I, it's hard to feel bad for her. I also, by the way, I don't think Cersei's just going to roll over and take this. I think she's already has a plan brewing. I, I think we'll get to it more later, maybe. I don't know what you think about this, but in my mind, she's going to use... Uh, Loris against Marjorie. She's going to use Loris hmm. to get a Marjorie. Interesting. That's what I think. That that could be very. I, I could see that happening. I think they were setting that up when Marjorie's like in the first episode. Yeah, that was the first episode. Yeah. Like, look, you got to at least like play the game, Loris. Everyone already knows. It doesn't matter. But I think Cersei's <laughs> going to be able to say, Loris is especially with this confrontation with the church, you yeah. know, and the the brothel, and Loris with Oliver from the brothel. I'm pretty. And I could, the, the way. And, and Cersei's already making inroads with the faith. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the way Cersei kind of turned back that one last time and said, remember, anything you want. Yeah, you, you thought like she was about to make a threat, but because you interrupted her, she's like, remember, anything you want. In my <laughs> mind, I think that I think there was, that statement meant something else. I think it meant something along the lines of, nothing you want. Or <laughs> anything you thought you're wrong. Or anything you care about, I'm going to destroy. Or, you know what I mean? I think that statement wasn't really, I'll do anything you want. I think it was a, a threat. <laughs> it, bring, it brings back an old uh, notion that I don't recall how much it's, it's mentioned early in the show, or if it is at all, but there's a, a theme. It might just be from the books, but it's such a mild thing that's, that, that Sansa often is thinking of how courtesy is a, is a lady's armor. Yeah, and yeah. that's on display here. They're both, except that Marjorie was showing how it can also be a weapon. She was being courteous, but was just throwing needles and darts constantly, and yeah. just like trying to bring much Cersei like down. Cersei has in the past, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, they both mentioned each other. Like, you call me a sister again, and you know, I'll have you strangled in your sleep. <laughs> you know, things like that. She just calls her sister like very soon. Mother. <laughs> calls her mother and all these other things. Yeah, just, just like <laughs> it's great. It's, uh, it's. I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy these two going at it. Um, it's not again to to briefly mention the books again. It's not something that really happens there. Marjorie's a much younger character. She's not. She doesn't have as much agency. So it's a good change. I like that, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Uh, I'm 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 definitely excited for more great dialogue like that. Now, uh, staying in King's Landing, we're we're going to talk about the High Septon and Olivar and Lancel. Uh, some people might have missed it that the the bearded dude standing behind the high septon was Olivar again the, the the same one who was Littlefinger's you know brothel manager guy. He was in the first episode. He was in the scenes with Oberyn and Ilaria. The one he's the one that wasn't on the menu. That guy again. Now it's a very odd scene. I guess the high septon is you know having women presented him in the form of the seven, and he apparently does this regularly. And, of course, Lancel storms in with some followers, and they march him through the streets naked. And it's another male ass that we were seeing this this, this episode that, yeah, uh, I could have done without that, I suppose. I don't, I don't mind seeing any asses, but the older asses I, I prefer not to see so much of. Ageist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I didn't complain about Dario's, but... <laughs> But yeah, he's not old. Um, so that was uh, that shows that this High Sparrow, at least indirectly, has a lot of sway. There's 
this Lancel is acting kind of as an agent of his, even though he didn't seem like anyone ordered him to do that. Maybe. It's kind of unclear whether Lancel did this on his own or whether he was told to do it or it was, you know, strongly suggested by the high school. We don't know how that whole, we don't know how this organization really works at this point. It's it not really even an organization, I guess. It didn't seem to me like the High Sparrow was behind it. He, he seemed like, ah, I know why they did that. I wish they hadn't. That seemed to be his attitude about it. He, he made this, he made an interesting quote that, that Ashea caught that I thought was maybe an, a, an indication that he did do it. He said that sin is, uh, hypocrisy is a sin that should be lanced, and he sent and there's Lancel is the one who went there. I don't know if that was just the writers being cute or if they didn't even notice that or if it was supposed to indicate that it was him that sent the, sent the order, but I guess that's an open question right now. So then we see we see the, the, the High Septon comes before Cersei and Council, and he points out the identity. It's another identity issue where he says the role of the high septon is this you know the i'm like the gods on earth if you strike at me you're striking at the gods and well that speech didn't go over so well um based on interestingly kyburn knew where he had been so kyburn clearly is doing at least a decent job as master whispers he of course everyone heard about the riot that was or the mini riot that that's public knowledge but he knew where he was already as soon as he walks in and just as a funny little aside there, the High Seven doesn't know who Kyburn is, and Kyburn says, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Another question of identity. <laughs> Very minor one. And I liked that Picel thought that <laughs> the High Seven's <laughs> private business should be kept quiet, because we already know Picel has uh, sees these sees similar on the side. Similar activities, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So, but Cersei... I guess she's looking to make a new ally here because she sent that High Septon to the Black Cells and then makes her way to the High Sparrow and has her conversation with him. What did you think about the conversation in general and like the undertones of what the High Sparrow was saying? And, and as well, what do you think about what is Cersei doing here? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. A, a couple things. In general, I liked it. I feel like this guy is, I don't know how to say this, but genuine. This part of why I'm suspicious of whether he ordered what I feel like is a pretty bold, public, cruel kind of act. It doesn't seem his nature. Again, we know very little, but he seems to be worried about, like, feeding poor people. You know what I mean? He's like, I don't need shoes. Someone needs them more than me. Let's get these people food and water. It's... A true believer. I'm going to say, right, Jesus-y. Jesus is more concerned about helping people and turning out the cheek rather than, like, taking someone down and bringing embarrassment or whatever, you know? Right. Uh, but you can also see how someone trying to follow this person might be overzealous, take it the wrong way, do go get things out of hand, you know? Um, Resort to violence when, yeah, yeah when it's not appropriate or at all. <laughs> um, but uh, regardless, I, I think that, A, uh, Cersei's struggling for allies here, and uh, this might be an opportunity. She already sees Lancel as part of this sparrow organization and it sees him maybe as a potential threat or maybe an indication of the power that they have over people's minds you know um she my my feeling is she doesn't actually have much respect for religion in the first place they're just i wouldn't think so <laughs> there's this thing she has to deal with that maybe they have power she can manipulate or whatever um and i but i can see how she might feel like she's right now her ally her alliance with the church maybe is 
uh, on edge, you know what I mean? Especially when this guy has been embarrassed in front of everyone. She might need to make a move politically, publicly for something more popular. Um, and I also think it was very, I was going to say the undertones there, I think of that guy was, hey, I'm just trying to help people, man. I have no motivations here. I'm not trying to get anything over on you. I just want to help people. And she was like, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, we should both help each other as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and that was right before she, and she kind of set him up for that a little bit by saying the, the high septon thought I should execute you. Yeah. And he just pauses and, and, and he has a good comeback. He says, well, I wouldn't presume to know your thoughts on the matter. Because he's, so he's not really, he shows that he's not afraid. He's capable of handling a little pressure maybe. And then so once she kind of you know, maybe weakens his, uh, you know, sets him up a little bit, she then says, yeah, but actually I want you as an ally. <laughs> yeah. She wanted to kind of test him first and, and, and bring he, that up. He may not be ambitious or corrupt, but it doesn't mean he's not savvy. Right. And she might not want to... Uh, destroy him yet, but she, you know, does, she is not beyond putting pressure on. You know what I mean? Look, I've helped you. You need to help me. You know, uh, whether or not he'll do it, we'll see. He might not respond to that kind of pressure very well. But I, one way or the other, he seems an interesting character, and it seems an interesting dynamic so far. Do you have any thoughts? And this is kind of an out there question, maybe getting ahead of ourselves. But if she's, we've seen that the person she's most concerned with is Marjorie. Marjorie's the person, and the Tyrells, kind of in general. Is there any way to relate her making the High Septon as an ally, apart from what you said about Loras, which is, I think, a, yeah. good, a good catch. A anything else you think that might be on her mind, what she might be thinking with bringing the Faith in uh, to kind of face down, like something they can do to Marjorie or anything they can do to the Tyrells? Maybe it's something they can do to Tommen. Maybe they can have an influence to, you know, if she can at least make herself seem in line with the church, and the church is good, and Tommen wants to be good and believes the church is good. And the church said, you should do this, Tommen. Okay, mother, mm. I'll do this. That's clever. Yeah, that could, I could see that happening. So there's a quick question, uh, another quick um, segue into identity questions. Even the High Sparrow has brings this up when she says, you're the High Sparrow. And he says, oh, that's a silly title. You know, Lord Duckling, High Turtle. You know, it's just a name. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't say who I am. So that's it's a more minor uh nod to the theme of this episode but it's it's certainly part of it and i, I like that even even these characters that are just getting introduced get to play the identity game <laughs> so now uh the final king's landing scene here we have cersei and kyburn and there's a message something that's interesting going on here that is a little hard to figure out cersei is sending a message to littlefinger and she emphasizes the word immediately which what do you think? What do, you, do you have any thoughts on what might be in that message? I'm assuming she just wants him to come to King's Landing. I think you know, she wants him at King's Landing immediately. Now, what for could be a million different things. Again, she might just be searching for allies. Yeah. She might... That And that's a good part of it. Uh, like, Littlefinger, she does think of him, as, I guess, as an ally or something. Yeah. that has been an ally and in the past. My assumption is money didn't just stop being a problem yesterday you know what i mean like when we the, the last time it was addressed it was a serious issue how much the court owed that's they true. probably didn't earn any money in that wedding you know what i mean <laughs> they probably just spent a ton more money uh so uh and uh, you know who knows what sort of money-making ventures tywin had that have been lost to people who maybe were paying her taxes who aren't now because he's not there to enforce it uh etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, I can think of a lot of reasons she might want uh, Littlefinger to come back. 
I agree with you. I think um, I think that's probably accurate. I, I think that if she knew about the only other thing I can think of is that she knows about Sansa. But I think she would be mad. She would she wouldn't just be like, oh, make sure he knows what immediately means. Like her her tone seemed like hurry, not like demanding. Like give me back Sansa immediately. You know, I, I didn't see it that way. But it could be. I also think she's more likely to send an assassin than a messenger if she found out Sansa was alive. Mm, right. That's, that's not a bad point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, given she's already done that. <laughs> multiple characters, multiple times. So. Very true. So the final scene at King's Landing that we'll discuss is Cersei going into Kyburn's laboratory, which is where this, this message gets sent. But there's a few other things happening. Now, two attentive fans pointed out uh, the the Canadian dude and Biosnake 20 thanks guys you pointed out to us that the dwarf head presented to Kyburn in the last and Cersei in the last episode was one of the dwarfs who performed at Joffrey's wedding same head so not really sure why that head is showing up but there you go there's some sort of connection there and that's kind of dark. <laughs> Shows you how far the show is willing to go. They actually cut the head off of one of the doors. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if you knew you signed up for that. Nasty. But then we have the creepy body moving behind Kyburn there. We like to call that creature the Kyborg. <laughs> uh, Ky- Franken-Burns monster. I don't know. The Kyborg who rides. <laughs> The, the mountain under a sheet. I don't know. So that's a developing story there. We want to see what happens there. It seems likely that we'll have some sort of re-un-Gregor at some point um, in some form or another. It definitely seems like it's heading that way. Do you have any thoughts on... It's, it's probably maybe a ways away from something happening in that regard, but it's clearly building up. Cersei asks how it's going, and he seems to be making great progress. It's like, yeah, I'm not, not all the way there yet, but yeah, great progress. What did you? What did? What do you think might be coming with that? It's a really, it's a really interesting and kind of. Hard, I guess it's hard to predict. I, you might not have much to to be able to guess here, but any any thoughts on what's happening with that? Well, my initial thought was just that you know he was going to make a Frankenstein's monster out of Gregor, and it, they would continue having this sort of unstoppable force of a warrior. But it occurs to me maybe there's more than that. Maybe he's going to be able to bring other people back. You know, maybe King's Landing will have its own army of zombies. Maybe Cersei took it to heart when they got that message from the wall. That... <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not it. We That's need our own zombie. There's, <laughs> there's a bunch more coming. <laughs> Better get started. Yeah, I'm interested to see what they, do, what they do with this. Of course, I have some. There's some things I know already from the book, but obviously I'm not going to mention those. So I can't make any guesses on this but i'm very curious where it's going to go because a lot of it's still mysterious in the books as well it's still up in the air so uh, i won't make any guesses but i am very curious and i'm and i'm hopeful that something cool happens and i'm excited to see it on screen because that's one of these one of these things that book to show books can't always do justice to scenery even no matter how good you are at describing something seeing it on screen is just a whole nother experience and i'm excited to see what this thing looks like if we ever get to see like a good look at it. I assume we will, but maybe, you know, it's just a matter of waiting. So anyway, time to move on to the wall. We have a lot of different things going on at the wall, a lot of a lot of undertones, a lot of sneaky things happening and a lot of things that are more straightforward. The scene the first scene we get is with Stanos Stanos. <laughs> Stannis, Davos, John and Ollie. We have another big question of identity here. Is John a Snow? Is he a Stark? 
is he Lord of Winterfell? Is he Lord Commander? What is he? And that is certainly brought up. Is he, you know, how how much of his identity is with the wildlings? How much of it is with the Black Brothers? And how do other people see him in that regard? Where, where their perspective of him matters perhaps as much as his own feelings on his own identity. And Stannis raises the issue, do what you want with the wildlings. He realizes they're not going to follow him. He suggests John kill them. John's not going to kill them, is he? That doesn't sound like John. I don't think so. I also think it'd be easier said than done. It's a hundred thousand of them, or whatever. Like if you kill Huge ten number. a day, they'll be doing it for a thousand for three years. Like, e- yeah, <laughs> even though a lot of them are women and children and old and old men, uh, and some of the women can fight. To be clear, but uh, most of them are not fighters. It's hard to say how many, but yeah, I mean they're not gonna. They wouldn't just say, "Okay, you're killing us. Let's submit to that." <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I, I agree with you. I don't see John doing that i don't john i mean john hesitated when he when janice lint cried for mercy even though he has all these reasons to kill janice and we'll talk about that in a minute but john is going to hesitate there i don't and, and he didn't he, he this is his way he is he doesn't he, john does not kill innocent people um even if they're wildlings which he you know unless the wildling unless the wildling is specifically he knows that they're specifically guilty of a certain crime when he knows this person has done some raiding or or whatever even in even under those circumstances given what's happening at the wall he might not execute such a person so somebody that's done nothing i just can't imagine john just murdering somebody i think he would see it as murder so that's going to be a tough tough thing for him now one thing that also is is coming up the whole question of how tied to John is with the wildlings and something that I caught uh, I think you caught as well is when the question of what is to be done with the wildlings and how John says yeah it wouldn't be popular for me to you know do things with them or whatever he acknowledges that most of his brothers don't like the wildlings that he would be he says he says yeah most of my brothers would be happy to see them dead like yeah. that the camera goes to Ollie cuz Ollie is of course probably one of those who agrees with that sentiment having his parents been killed by them and but ollie is now john stewart a very important role that often leads to being the future lord commander or at least having rank and that whole situation is very interesting sean what do you think about the possibility that there will be some conflict with regards to john's belief on the wildlings and the other brothers especially ollie yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, uh, I, I'm I still kind of perplexed as to what any of those men think are going to happen in that whole scenario. I feel like... <clears throat> it's unprecedented, even in even in the history of the wall. It's, it's, I feel like it's unrealistic for John to just kill all the wildlings. Like, they couldn't even stop him from crossing the wall until Stannis' army showed up. So when Stannis' army leaves, maybe they won't be able... They won't have, like, Mance's leadership. And a lot of the most brave and forward-thinking and cooperative ones have already been killed, right? But I don't think it means the rest of them be like, all right, we'll just stand here and let you kill us all. (laughs) They're still going to, like, fight as individuals at a minimum. There's no way they're all, like, chained up. They don't have enough chains for 100,000. Like, I don't understand the logistics. That's a lot of metal. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's more of an issue of whether or not John can keep them from crossing the wall, whether whether or not John's going to have it in him to kill them all you know what i mean i think it's more a matter of if he is going to be capable of defending the wall against them and he mentions that that he wants stannis's men to leave because he can't afford to feed them yeah a hundred thousand miles on top of that stannis's army isn't anywhere near that big in my mind i kind of assume part of the logistics are that stannis probably cut off a portion of the army that of the hundred thousand of them 
Most of them are spread over over miles and miles and miles of territory, hunting their own food in the woods, maintaining their own camps, you know, maybe in disarray, some of them left or whatever. But I don't see how he could have possibly just captured and contained 100,000 people in one fell swoop and continues to have them all captured and contained and fed for even a day. Do you know how much <laughs> poop that many people generate? You know, like <laughs> rather not think about it, but how much it's water surely they would a consume? Lot. You know, like not to mention Stan- and maybe they are treating the prisoners poorly and they're not getting as much, except Stannis' army is definitely getting fed well and maybe some of his army is off to the side, maybe they brought their own provisions. But again, I just when I think about the logistics of this I don't think that John could just decide to go kill all the wildlings. No, I, I think John's mm-hmm. going to have our time defending the wall against the wildlings. Presumably, they are. Yeah, presumably they they're all still on the other side, with some exceptions. Yeah. Maybe some of the leaders have been brought over, but yeah, they're, so they're they're still able to hunt and do you know and forage at least. That's that will count for some of their yeah. their. But a lot of the hunting and foraging that thousands and thousands of wildlings are doing on the other side of the wall, is where the. The Night's Watch was doing some of their hunting and foraging. Now mm-hmm. they can't do it there, right? So most of that, I assume they do south of the wall. But yeah, but even but but and if that many people close together, there's not going to be much good hunting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Many. So I, I just I, in my mind, there's just all sorts of logistical problems up there. But my guess is the show's not going to get bogged down in that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, still, so if I try for a minute to put that aside and just assume everyone's going to be fed. Uh, and disease won't become rampant because of dysentery and all these other things <laughs> I can't help but think about. Let's just assume that's not the issue. I uh, I still don't think John's just going to kill them all. But I also don't think John's just going to open a gate and let them all in. Hey, all right, everyone, come on. You'll be safe in here. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen either. Um, but I'm not sure what is going to happen. I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. It was kind of hinted by Stanos that, you know, maybe Tormund will be a leader. Maybe he'll do something. Yeah, really, a lot of and, foreshadowing uh, for that. If not and direct, previews direct. for the season, we saw some bands of wildlings seem to be moving together and attacking, and Tormund was with them. So uh, I, I don't know if maybe they'll, some, maybe at least some small group of wildlings under Tormund's leadership will accompany Stannis. I don't know if that's a possibility. Maybe some small group of wildlings will... Spring Tormund free from the wall somehow, <laughs> you know. Uh, That'd be exciting. <laughs> uh, but uh, here's the other thing: the thing that I was seeing here was the revenge thing. Hmm. Stannis is offering John a chance At to go revenge. reclaim Winterfell. Yes, and uh, you know, the identity, of course, is very. He's connected again to that, like but, Arya has to choose between revenge and service, right? And and sort of <laughs> up to this point, I thought John was clear. I, every time there was any sort of temptation. Pretty much since the moment that he ran off and his brothers brought him back. And uh, I, I like that line, too, when <laughs> Mormont was like, uh, I can't remember the, what did he say? He said, honor brought you back. Yeah, I didn't say it was your honor. <laughs> and, yeah, I didn't say it was your honor. Uh, anyway, I felt like John, pretty time and again, has like committed his life to the wall, you know? Yeah. And I don't, I, I feel like any of these other temptations aren't even close. There's no way. But, um, but this time with Davos... They, they really took a minute to have Davos try to convince him. Davos's argument was fairly and, convincing, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> I don't like it. I, I don't think it's... I think it's a, a bad precedent. I think that if, oh, there's a bad leader in Winterfell, well, then it's the Wall's responsibility to go do something. Well, why isn't it the Wall's responsibility to go do something about Joffrey or Ares? <laughs> or, there's so many other things that if this is an issue, then they should have done or, and will have to do in the future. I still think it's fundamentally appealing to Jon's desire to go to Winterfell. Which I don't feel John should do. I don't feel Davos's argument should convince John. But 
think it might. I feel like the way that scene went and the way the plot is going, I won't be surprised if if John does leave the wall. Uh, maybe I'll be slightly surprised. I'll be slightly <laughs> surprised and slightly disappointed. I feel like John should, for a billion reasons, stay at the wall, be commander. Yeah, and... He mentions as well the sacred vow he meant and, you know, the honor. And Stannis, of course, says, your father was really honorable. And he says, I take that as a high compliment. It wasn't meant as a compliment. Honor got your father killed. <laughs> and he's not wrong, uh, although it wasn't just honor that got his father killed. He made, Ned did other things wrong as well. It wasn't just being too honorable. That's where he got him killed. <laughs> his head didn't fall off simply because he was too honorable. But he's, Stannis is also, you know, at least partly right about that. But as you say, he's kind of using that argument to make John to get John to do something that John doesn't want to do, and the thing that it is objectively is definitely against the rules for the Night's Watch. There's no question uh, that you that was good of you to point that out. Now, uh, an interesting question that comes from uh, another listener, uh, Leonard Hohane. I don't know if I said your name right. Apologize if I didn't. asks Why doesn't John mention to Stannis that Bran is alive? Bran, John knows that Bran is out there somewhere. He doesn't see him at the at the house, but Sam Sam mentions it to him. I wasn't sure if this was the case or not. I get the sometimes that's it gets right, the show messed right. up, but, but Bran actually mentions it to him, and that's when John had no power. John wasn't Lord Commander; he didn't have any ability to go after him. Now John has another thing he can break his vow over potentially, which is sending men to go maybe look for Bran. But if Stannis wants a Stark to stand behind. It's, it may be a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a plot hole or if John is just holding on to that information, but that would be a start for people to get behind if, if Stannis could find him. And yeah. Rickon, of course, would be out there as well somewhere, presumably, and would also be a Stark to stand behind. They both have dire wolves to prove who they are. No one's going to doubt that that's his real Stark when they walk up with their dire wolf and everything. You can't fake that, really. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if that's just a, a minor continuity error or if it's something that they're planning on bringing up a little later. So obviously you can't really imagine John just not, just forgetting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I had forgot and, uh, <laughs> it's not my own brothers, you know, of course, but I am like thinking really hard about all the angles of these notes and everything. And that totally had slipped my mind. And I'm just like, Going to work and watching TV. John's freaking <laughs> fighting zombies and you know elected the leader of men and all. You know he has a lot to deal with. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I I feel like even if it was a uh, a slow roll that he was making, some hint, some image, some thought in his mind, some comment to Ollie or Sam or something could have uh, covered that. Uh, yeah, I, I I I had not considered it at all. I didn't think until you're just now mentioning it. it does make me think that maybe it is a little. Aaron continuity. Yeah, so we'll just have to wait and see if they if they pick that thread back up or if if not. Um, open question, I suppose. Um, now we get the another scene at the wall. Uh, what is referred to in the books as the Shield Hall. It's just a, a place where it's just a meeting hall for the for, at Castle Black, basically. I don't know if they've given it a name in the show, but whatever. It's not important. Obviously, we'll just call it the Shield Hall. Uh, a, a brief mention of how Aemon is sick, which hopefully you know, anytime you have an old man being sick. You know, you worry about him a little bit, but there's really no more evidence or clues than that, so we'll just have to see. But that would be a loss for John. Eamon, of course, is really important and someone who supports John, and John doesn't have a lot of... He has popular support, but a lot of his close friends are gone. Grant and Pip died, and, you know, some of the other 
some of the other people may have the same worry that Thorne has with regards to his ties to the Wildlings and, you know, his, his whole thing with Corrin. And I guess this is his first test here. He's presented with a few things. He's He's got this whole... You you get this. You, you told me you were uh, a little bit anxious when the uh, the the question of the latrine digging came up. Yeah, yeah. I I almost feel like I should have known better, but I was like, oh man, John's not going to name Alistair Thorne to this. Is he? No way he would do the. <laughs> Is he drunk with I'm, power already? Yeah, I'm so glad he didn't. I, I feel it, like the camera. Maybe Alistair Thorne was worried about him, and and he, it might also go to show that Alistair Thorne maybe. Uh, I don't know. Say this because I, I don't want to. I appreciate his character, and I can imagine his character might have been afraid this would happen. I knew that punk kid, you know, I can imagine that being part of him. And because it did seem like the, the camera angle showed us, you know, it was like hinting at that might happen, or at least Thorne was afraid that it would happen. I'm so glad that it didn't, because I think that would have been terrible of John. Yeah, that would have been the revenge theme turned <laughs> yeah. uh, turned ugly and and very, you know, adolescent. <laughs> Almost yeah. very. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been. So, uh, and disappointed for John. Yeah. yeah, it would have been a, a, a unwise and unproductive and a million other negative things. Um, so uh, I'm glad that didn't happen. I, I thought that was a particularly good move for him to be named First Ranger. I thought that was... And we have a parallel to Season 2 where Janos Slint kind of goes back and forth with his blustery bully personality and his extreme weakness and cowardice very similar to his interaction with Tyrion right before he's sent to the wall where he's kind of you know gets all haughty with Tyrion says I have friends this and that but when when Bronn comes out you know he's 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 a little more blubbery and it's a it's it's very he's he's plays the bully role very well you know he's he talks big but then when it comes down to it he's got nothing he's yeah. got no spine and he kind of lost his temper and got himself killed. <laughs> what yeah. did you think about that decision? Do you think that that John had no choice? Do you think that what and what do you think was going through his mind? Do you think how much? Do you think there was some an element of revenge for what happened to his father? Uh, do you think he was just performing his duty, or was it a little maybe a little of both? I yeah, I'm not sure. I uh, one of my friends that I talked to about it uh, actually thought that John like set that up, like, uh, and it kind of makes sense in a certain way that. He knew that Janos would not like this, and it would give him a chance to like put him in his place, maybe even kill him. You know, and I think that's possible. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more in line with Stannis advising him to send your enemies away. And I, by the way, that was a good line when Stannis <laughs> like oh, whoever said that didn't have many enemies. And, <laughs> and that I think that it was showed. I think that whole series of interactions showed that John doesn't think of Alistair Thorne as an enemy. A right. B does think of Janos Slint as an enemy. Mm. And he was, in, in, and see, he was taking Stannis' advice. Send your enemy away. Um, and uh, to some extent, he may have like considered, John may have thought ahead, Janos might not like this. If he doesn't like it, I might have to kill him. <laughs> but I don't think that John wanted to kill him. I could be wrong, but I don't think John was like, ah, finally, I got an excuse to kill Janos. <laughs> you know, I don't think John's bloodthirsty. He's almost, he, but he, he may have been... I'm glad you gave me a reason to do this. A part of him might have been like, he may have been a little satisfied, but he didn't want to have to go out of get out of line to do it. Yeah, and maybe at first, but I still think that moment, I think it was a really good moment there when he, everyone gathers around, he lays him down, he's got his sword, and Janos like, realizes, oh crap, okay, he's not messing around. And he throws out an apology, and then John's, 
basically, you know, he gives him last words. Like, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't mean it. You're, you're right, I should have followed Yeah, he, he had started the swing, and then right. he yells. But he lifts the sword yeah. to, to cut, and, and, and Janice says, Mercy, have mercy, please, I'm sorry. He breaks down into tears. And I, I feel like at that moment became genuine. It's like, I'm scared. I've always been scared. I'm so sorry. It's like crying. And I, I, I really believe at that moment that John... I, I had these thoughts developing, and it got reinforced because I watched the little clips. Say, HBO has like these little two-minute little interviews of Martin and little, you know, the directors and whatever about the show. And, it, and they all but confirmed what I was thinking, which was that John doesn't really want to kill this guy. And they paralleled it to uh, uh, when he was going to kill Igret. You remember Igret was laid down with the sword yeah. and was about to kill him, and he just couldn't do it. And he just... It, not even that John doesn't want to kill or even that he doesn't want to kill an innocent person. He doesn't have it to kill a person, or a not, a not innocent person even, um, but a helpless person. This is the, if, if Janice was fighting back, he'd freaking fight, no kill problem, him, you know yeah. what I mean? But he's just like laying there, being held down, or just going to kill him, and just, John just didn't sit well with him. Even after Ned had him watch it, who knows how many times, you know? <laughs> like, he still just couldn't bring himself to do it. And uh, I think he realized... Going to identity thing, think John left a little piece of himself behind. That maybe had a little bit of growth, but uh, this isn't natural to him. It's not what he wants. Especially at the moment he's asking for mercy, he just he he only did it because he had to. If that makes sense, it's it's his mm-hmm. role in this leadership position. I'm gonna have to do things I don't want to do. I don't think Ned wanted to kill that guy on the wall either. I think Ned. In the back of his mind, in the, the very intro, the prologue to the first season or book or whatever, you know, I think Ned on some level is like, there really are zombies. I know, I understand why this guy ran away. <laughs> but I don't know if there are zombies or not. I, I have to chop this guy's head off. It's the rules. It's the rules. I, have to, I just have to do this. I can't let my wonderings or concerns get in the way of my responsibility in this position, you know. And I think John did it. And Stannis gave him that look, like, all right, good you job. Approved. Yeah, it was do, more you know? grudging approval of, or maybe not even grudging, yeah. but just approval, like Stannis. And when you see that, Davos kind of mentions it. He's like, Stannis kind of likes you. He didn't say it exactly like that, but he's he's coming around on you, yeah. you know, or whatever. And that's about as good as it gets at Stannis. And, you know, it doesn't like, have a lot of people yeah. he likes. <laughs> but um, another a question from a listener, Sean. Uh, listener Ron Snow wants to ask, how good did you feel about guessing correctly that Janice would get his head chopped off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I had trouble keeping a straight face on you. Because if you, if you had just said, oh, I just want Janice is to die, you know, that would be, okay, well, that's generic. <laughs> but you actually specifically named Well, because fate. I felt like he effectively deserted. And, that, you know, like, it, it's... That's the punishment. That's the, the, I don't know if the that's, punishment that's Ned... for desertion is decapitation per se uh but it was definitely death yeah and it seems like in a ceremony over and over again in this world decapitation is the yeah, way it's that, done. That, yeah it's and, that or uh, hanging are the only two ways really yeah. and and the northerners prefer to swing the sword themselves you yeah know. yeah he who passes and, uh, the sentence swings the sword that whole thing m- much like the moment with danny just last season when she was like having to execute someone she was trying to follow the law you know is is it was weird how she, you know, the law is the law. Kind of the same thing. John, like, personally, he didn't want to kill this man. But the law is the law. He kind of knew he had to. Danny, personally, didn't want to kill that man. But the law is the law. She knew she had to. Except that John's getting public support. <laughs> Danny wasn't getting public <laughs> he support. He might have wanted to kill him, too. Maybe not. True. He had a bit. <laughs> a part many, of him. Uh, right. Uh, he was. Uh, he may have been conflicted about it. I think a part of, at least a part of him wanted to do it. But another yeah. part of him maybe didn't. 
but yeah. also another part there of it. Are, he had to. Right, mm-hmm. many, many reasons for him to do it. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to say, I, I'm trying to express this properly. It's not, I don't think that John liked Janice. It's not like I think John wanted yeah. Janice to live, but, but he just Why won't he to, like me? Even Janice Slint, I'll say it like this, even this person who has personally wronged John and has demonstrated cowardice and... Uh, I mean, when I said personally wrong, I meant by like betraying his father in the past, but also just now by being insubordinate to you know has broken the rules of their you know on and on. That's laundry list of things that he's done wrong. But at that moment when he's asking for mercy, John still hesitated. Even Janice Slint. So uh, you can imagine, you know, uh, Tywin and Stannis have killed people who've done much less wrong with much less hesitation. And for better or worse, John might be getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And let's see. I think that is all we have for that scene. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where John goes from here. And I really appreciate how this scene and that moment of him deciding to do, whether or not to go through with the execution really reflects on this this episode's theme of identity and service and revenge. Because all those things were had to be going on in John's head. He had to really be conflicted over so many different things. And uh, it resolved kind of the only way it, it could, I suppose. All right, let's move on. Let's go to, before we get to Winterfell, we have the road to Winterfell, which is, I guess, roughly Moat Kalen, where all this stuff happens, or right before Moat Kalen. We have uh, Littlefinger and Sansa. And we have this question of... Dealing with Roose Bolton in general, uh, uh, Littlefinger is basically, you know, having an alliance with with Roose Bolton here, and he says that, you know, he's already he's had experience. Rather, he's dealt with some of the worst people in the series. He's dealt with Joffrey. He's dealt with Cersei. He's dealt with Jano Slint. He's dealt with the Tyrells and all these schemers. And so, dealing with so Bolton's just another 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 rung on the ladder, I suppose. The ladder, ooh, the chaos ladder. Yeah, that, that yeah, works yeah. nicely. <laughs> and we have Sansa at first. Of course, she's quickly just no. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. What did you think about how she she decided really quickly? Did you and and um, interesting to to include these thoughts that these these the themes of this episode. We, you know, the idea of her getting revenge is is one thing that Littlefinger uses to uh convince her and the idea of identity again of her being sansa you know you, 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 just because you dyed your hair doesn't mean you're you're still stark of winterfell uh yeah man i have a lot of thoughts here because this is another area where after last week's episode my mind was still stirring it started coming up with more ideas and i was thinking about the idea of uh you know where where they were going and who was going to get married? Like it, you kind of pointed out to me, it's not necessarily Littlefinger getting married. That was kind of a marriage proposal. So yeah. Huh. And thinking about the candidates, like there's only who could it possibly be? And I started going toward Tristan. I started thinking, in my mind, this is where I was thinking. I was like, all right, well, they're going somewhere out of Cersei's reach. So places that could be that make any kind of sense, like maybe they're going to Bravos or something. Mm-hmm. But I, that seems really outside, unless there's just a random reason to connect with Arya that for the sun. Uh, I kind of wrote that off. <laughs> Maybe they're going north. Maybe he could have Sansa marry uh, Ramsay Snow. Nah, there's no way Littlefinger would do that to Sansa. <laughs> what if they're going to Dorne? That would be out of sight Cersei's reach. If Brienne and Podrick are following, that would reunite Jamie. 
the Martells probably don't want to be mixed up with the Lannisters. They'd probably break off that wedding to Marcella to marry a Stark who'd be against. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I started to think was happening. <laughs> so in this episode, when you're like, all right, Sansa, you're going to marry Rand. It's like, what? No! <laughs> yeah, tell him no, Sansa. <laughs> doesn't he know how crazy she is? He doesn't Littlefinger know how crazy Ramsay is? And, and then we find out, no, he doesn't know. And yeah, and that was something that kind of bothered me, too. I was like, Littlefinger should know. I feel like he should know, but I guess a couple things. You know, one, they kind of, like, cover it by saying, oh, I don't know anything about you. But that still was a tough pill for me to swallow, because Littlefinger, I feel like, very calculating. Long-term plans. I feel like it's something... He should know. It, I feel like it's something he should know in general. But especially when he's going to marry Sansa to him, he should definitely know. But maybe the knowledge isn't out there. Uh, you pointed out to me that it's new for him to be a legitimized son in the first place, so he might not have been on a raider. But it's new for him to even be recognized as... Uh, even an illegitimate bastard, right? right? That's, uh, yeah, the show does hasn't done it. This is one of those rare times where I'll point out some information from the book because the show. I don't think the show points this out, but <laughs> Ramsay is not even acknowledged by Roose Bolton as his child until a couple years before, even perhaps only one year before the series starts. So Littlefinger would have had no reason to ever look into who this person is because he's wasn't ever at, at at court. He wasn't acknowledged as his son. Even if Littlefinger somehow knew that Roose Bolton had a bastard son, he would know that Roose didn't do anything with him, that he was irrelevant. So there would be little reason for Littlefinger to look into it. Also, uh, very important, the showrunners even pointed this out, because a lot of people have this question about how could Littlefinger make this decision. Well, Littlefinger cares about power more than anything. If he thinks that this is a way to get more power, he's going to do it. Sansa is less important to him than his ambitions, even though Sansa is somewhat important to him. She's still second fiddle when it comes to his, his, what he's after. And what he's after is, well, as much as he can get. He wants to be as high up as he can get. He wants to be as powerful as he can get. His ambition is what drives him, not his feelings for other people. Although there are some exceptions to that. And we're going to get to that once we get to the scene at Winterfell when Littlefinger and Roose are talking and with their interactions very interesting undertones there, and there's a little something that we may have forgotten about Littlefinger that we're going to bring up, so stay tuned. First of all, however, Brienne and Podrick, another example of identity and revenge all coming together and service, all coming together in, another, in one scene. We have basically both Brienne and Podrick's origin stories, kind of like superhero origin stories, except they're not superheroes, but... <laughs> We get to hear why Podrick is where he's at and why Brienne is the way he, way she is, why she was so into Renly. Well, how how did those how did that strike you? Those they're they're hearing their stories. I liked it. It was good. In fact, it was quite reminiscent to me of when uh, Arya and the Hound were traveling, and he kind of gave his story about his his youth and his brother. You know, uh, it was. Uh, I, I like it. Uh, in fact, another thing uh, that I've been kind of noticing. Actually, real quick, I want to, I want to think about something else. Uh, Theon in uh, season two or three, the season when he was being tortured by Ramsay. Season two. Uh, Ramsay. Uh, no, maybe that is season three. It doesn't matter. Anyway. Ramsay mm-hmm. seemed to not even be noticed by the guards around Theon, even. I couldn't tell how much of that was like him pretending and they all knew it for Theon's sake of the torture, or if he actually wasn't. He's kind of going back again to how unknown he might have been. Um, That's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, but uh, 
I feel like that was just a trick, but there may be some of the guards may not have known him, or maybe not didn't know how bad because he ended up killing some of the guards when he yeah was, yeah exactly. so, he, so that I, I can't imagine Bruce was happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> like those are our men, those are a resource. They're not your. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, anyway, I was saying about Bran. Uh, sorry, I got off track a little bit there. Talking about Bran and Podrick. There are any stories? Yeah, to... Bran and and her loyalty to Renly and submitting to him, and then how he made her feel good because he was the one person that that, that was helping her not yeah, be ridiculous. Yeah. And her identity issue is interesting with not being a knight. And Podrick wants to be a knight, but Podrick says. You know, being a better, you're the best fighter I've ever seen. That's more important than you being a knight. That's what yeah. I learned. If I can learn that from you, that would be more yeah. valuable. Like, I'll become a knight. If I can learn to fight like you, that'll make me a knight. The Hound also not a knight, right? So Yep. Very interesting. Uh, opposite ends of the spectrum there. Sandor, very disillusioned with knighthood. Brienne is the most, possibly the most knightly character in the entire series. Yet they won't let her be one. <laughs> Ron also not a knight. Another character presented as a great fighter, also not a knight. Not yeah. very honorable, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I thought it was a really good scene. Uh, very well acted by Gwendolyn Christie. The one thing that got me a little was her talking about how everyone thought she was ugly, which is kind of a hard sell because she's just not ugly. <laughs> but the character in the book, she's described as really, really ugly. Like, all, the, all these things that are wrong with her. Uh, so that <laughs> doesn't quite work, but it, it worked well enough. I mean, she is large, and that some people think that a, you know a woman that size can't be attractive. I would disagree, but in this world, it fits with what a lot of people would would believe. And certainly, her mannerisms and her wanting to be a fighter is very unfeminine. And so, from her perspective, it's been really hard for her. But she's kind of risen above it, and she's heading north, and. This is where some of the revenge comes in. She still really wants to get Stannis. And she's heading in his general direction. Mm -hmm. Which brings up a couple of questions here. We have, well, one question, one prediction by listeners. Lisa Okrush asks, what role will Brienne play at Winterfell, if any? Because we know she's going there. She says she knows where they're headed. Yeah. Any thoughts on what Brienne might do uh, in, in, in Winterfell? Um, let's, let's leave Stannis out of that for now. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it depends on how long it takes her to get there. It takes <laughs> on how long it takes Stannis to get there. Let's assume these are two uh, separate things and Stannis is not involved yet. She's, yeah. she's got to do her one task first and then... <laughs> uh, it's, it's especially awkward because she's already kind of had this run in them with Littlefinger. Maybe Littlefinger will drop off Sansa and, and head to King's Landing, right? Um, in which case, maybe she represents herself to Sansa and maybe this time it's easier for Sansa to accept. But I... Uh, I don't know, man. I still feel like Winterfell is not a safe place in general. I don't want Brienne to go there. I don't want Sansa to go there. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Let's not go to Winterfell. Characters. Tis a silly Tis place. A silly place. <laughs> uh, listener Rob Stark predicts that Stannis will be captured, or Brienne will be captured by Stannis and not get to fulfill her revenge, which would be kind of a, a form of tragedy, I suppose. Could happen, no doubt. Uh, it's hard to say. We we don't know. I don't um, see tragedy coming from a lighthearted show like Game of Thrones, though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's let's go ahead and move on to Winterfell itself. We can still recall Brienne if we need to, but we were introduced to, kind of a reintroduced to Winterfell. It's being rebuilt. It's being put back together. We see, we see some guys carrying ravens in cages. We see flayed men. And we see Theon. And... 
Theon is kind of doing his work and looking around, looking. Theon, no lines in this episode, but you still get a great sense of what's going oh, through his yeah. mind. It's yeah. this great facial acting. There's a lot of great facial acting in the show in general, but in this episode, there's just in general. John, I forgot to mention, John's facial acting after he cuts Janos' head off. He's breathing heavily. He's like, good, very good acting. I think Kit Harrington doesn't get enough props for, for his acting skills because sometimes people look at his that character and how, you know, Mm, he is you know he's always got that long face and and they they compare him to you know someone who doesn't emote and that's well that's just the the character he's supposed to be like that but that was a tangent (laughs) he emotes subtly yes and uh i give way more credit to uh lena hetty uh cersei's character i think she she doesn't emote very much except she emotes immensely it's just so (laughs) subtle so well done and also by the way that's one of my favorite moments of this episode we're building up to right now when when Sansa's introduced to Roose Bolton. Mm, she like kind of stares at him. second before yeah. she, like, put her armor on. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> she was kind of defenseless for a second, and she put her armor on. She stares at him, and then all of a sudden the smile breaks out, and she yeah. curtsies. And, yeah, it was really it was a tense moment there. You wonder if she's just going to, like, what she, how she, is she going to break? Is she going to just, like, you bastard, you know, yeah. you killed my family. <laughs> or is she, maybe even she doesn't break. She just, like, mm, go plays more of the Sansa from King's Landing with Joffrey, mm. where she just, like... Doesn't make eye contact, keeps herself, just tries to avoid attention, doesn't want to get beat or whatever, you know. But it seems like she's turned a switch on. She's going to play yep. the game, you know. Mm-hmm. Very nice. So we get a series at Winterfell here. We get a series of kind of one-on-ones. And these these one-on-ones are all very interesting. Lizzie, I'm sorry. I want to cut you off. I, sure. I remember the thing I was starting to lead to a minute ago. Okay. Uh, something I've been detecting this season that I wonder if was just going on all along and didn't notice as much. But I feel like there's a lot of one-on-one interaction, a lot of sort of pairs that we're following. Uh, I yes. think in the past there were more people acting on their own or as part of big groups. But now I feel like we're largely watching couples. Yeah, this is uh, this episode in particular. It was very full of one-on-one interactions that were really important. But this season even. We've seen hmm. Boris. It's maybe more, okay. more uh, exaggerated, I think. Uh, but like Varus and... T- Tyrion have been almost exclusively interacting with each other, and Podrick and Brynn have. You know, we got one moment That's where she point. went yeah. off but We had Arya and Sandor Arya for and a long time. Yeah, yeah. The, the, there's a lot of kind of pairings of mm. people who are interacting with each other, and almost no one else. A large percentage of screen time is covered by that. And, uh, here, and here at Winterfell, it's a bit more of a you know round robin where everyone gets this little moment with everyone yeah. else, um, but it's along the same lines. First of all, we have a scene that comes before we get to Winterfell, but is we're, we're doing all these by location, r- roughly. So we st- we'll start with the scene between Roose and Ramsay before the before Littlefinger and Sansa arrive, which is when Roose points out, and this is this is shown right after we see these flayed men in the yard of Winterfell. Roose points out that we can't hold the North on terror alone. He yeah. basically he's he's acknowledging that terror has its place, it has its value, and and as as Ramsay points out, it worked in this particular case. He's like, yeah, but we can't just keep doing that. That's not going to, that's going to be a, that's a good way to set an example. But if you do that to everyone, they're going to turn on us. He doesn't, he doesn't even complain about the method used. He just basically is like, look, we can't just do that. Yeah, <laughs> he, yeah he, ex- he points out and he recognizes, hey, we don't have Tywin. We don't necessarily have the Lannisters. Yeah. And, if we ever had them. And we even if we did, they've never sent their army up north anyway. Yeah. We can't, I'm not sure if we can really count that in the first place. Which so. is why he's already turned, agreeing to basically throw off the Lannisters and an ally with Baelish instead. Yeah. Because Baelish, 
is they they're kind of of the same mind when they have their conversation a little later they're talking about they both kind of agree that the Lannisters are have too many issues they're you know they lost Tywin that was such a huge blow and it's time to jump ship and well they might be right especially with they already having jumped ship makes kind of makes their argument more correct because they're a big part of the powers you know the, the whole the whole situation the whole network but backing up a little um Bolton points out how alliances are good you can you can leverage alliances into more power but the thing that makes alliances most solid is marriage and ramsey can just kind of unsure i don't what did you think about ramsey's reaction to this what is what do you think i i had a hard time judging ramsey's thoughts on this he it's not something that he maybe expressed very much. Well, I've been able to perfectly judge all of Ramsey's other thoughts, so now I can't on this one thing. <laughs> uh, I, uh, one, I thought it was a... Uh, I want to say I thought it was a little out of character the way... Uh, let me say something. I, I was actually eating. <laughs> I, I, I was eating some food during the episode, and when uh, Rue says, stop eating and listen to me, I stopped eating and listened to him. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah, he's got a very commanding voice. Yeah. Michael, uh, Michael M- M- I think his name is Michael Mechelatin. I don't know how to say it, but yeah, he's he's good at that. Uh, and I thought it was like I felt like Ramsey wanted so bad to impress his father, and was in such like awe and gratitude when he was legitimized. You know that I thought it was slightly out of character that he was just kind of eating away, and his father's trying to tell him something he wasn't quite paying attention. He's kind of himself for collecting those taxes or whatever you know um but then again you know i don't know how good i am at reading Ramsey in the first place maybe <laughs> like many people in the world you kind of get on them one time and they do okay for a little while but then they just go back to what they're going to do anyway you know and uh so you know like i said before man little thing you don't know what you're doing to sansa i'm so worried about sansa <laughs> that's all i'm thinking <laughs> so yeah. and there's there's a little there's a couple other interesting things going on in the scene as well um our longtime listener David McCall mentions that his favorite part of this entire scene of all the things in Winterfell was the serving woman saying the North remembers. And that is another reference to both identity and revenge. Yeah. The North remembers is a reference to how they're going to get back at the people who killed the Starks and who betrayed Rob, etc. But it's also an identity. She's, she's, she's identifying as a member of the North, as a Northman, as a, as a, she belongs there, which is what Littlefinger said. Look, that's your home. You belong there. This is where you belong. But he, of course, also, as we said, revenge is something that he's specifically pointing to. And this is something that I think there's a little more to maybe what Littlefinger's doing here. This is something that we're going to get into a little gradually as we move through these different one-on-ones. But first, another, a person speaking of identity crises, which we've been talking about a lot this episode, Theon. He has, is he Reek? Is he Theon? Is seeing Sansa gonna trigger something is that gonna make him yeah. and what about the other way around sansa is what happens if sansa <coughs> notices him which it seems like it's bound to happen this eventually. is a, a thought i wanted to get to back when we were talking about Arya. i i feel like this idea of identity and and revenge especially when i think about the the over you know the kind of big picture take a step back and look at the big picture of what's going on in game of thrones to me it's always been this sort of this struggle for the for the throne, for the Iron Throne, which is overshadowed by these characters' short-sightedness by the threat of Danny and the West with dragons and zombies in the North, right? Right. And to that end, it makes me wonder... Most of the characters, most of the plot lines are kind of 
feed into that in one way or the other. Except at this point, I don't really see how Arya feeds into that. So I'm kind of wondering what's going on in the big picture, in the long term with her character. Where is that going? Slightly more so, I feel like Theon is mixed up in the you know, struggle for the throne within Westeros. But I still can't help but wonder what quite his role is at this point, where it's going to go. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm wondering that about all the characters, but he's not really a mover and shaker. Or is he? I feel like they're, they're making a point. He's been there from the beginning, and they're making a point of keeping us paying attention to him. And I can't help but wonder if, especially when we're thinking about these ideas of revenge, and Sansa seems to have support of the commoners here home, and Littlefinger is trying to get Sansa to get revenge for her brother's death, but Littlefinger, I think this is something you alluded to a minute ago, Littlefinger wants to get revenge for Caitlyn's death. Right, that's the big thing. That's that's potentially under the surface there, is, is and, Littlefinger. Because if, if, some people, and I don't disagree, there's some things about Littlefinger's plan that seem a little bold, or a little gambly, a little risky. And to me that says that, that it's there's two possibilities. Either the showrunners are just playing a little loose with the script and with Littlefinger's ambitions, or there's just more to it. And I think there's the more to it is more likely because there's that whole the little finger wants very likely wants revenge for Catelyn, and he knows Roose Bolton is responsible, partly responsible uh, for the Red Wedding. In fact, back in season one, Littlefinger says he's saving himself for her. It's it goes beyond That's, just yeah. how he's pining for. Her. He's held a torch for her for like twenty years. I mean, it's not a small thing. It, it, as much as he's all about ambition and power. He's had these feelings. He had those feelings for Catelyn since he was a little boy. So it's a childhood thing. It's something that stuck with him for a long time. And those things are powerful. We hang on to those childhood things, and so, and it's, it really shows up when they're when Littlefinger and Roos have their own their own one on one. Which is, it starts off with a brief one on one with Littlefinger and Ramsay. They just have like a couple of lines. He's like, Ramsay says, "I will never harm her." By the way, I got to distract you once again because I got to tell you what I thought for that scene. <laughs> sure. I he said. He said, I'll, I'll never hurt her. I give you my word. Or something to that effect. And I, all I could hear was a scene from The Princess Bride when they get out of the fire swamp and, you know, you know Wesley doesn't want to back down and uh, Buttercup demands, you know, we'll, we'll surrender. If you promise no harm, we'll come to this man. And, and the prince is like, if I, may I live a thousand years and never hunt again. No harm will come to this man. I give you my word. <laughs> and he turns to the turns to the six finger man and says, "Hey, take him to the torture chamber after this." You know, like, and the six finger is like, "I give you my word." <laughs> so here's Ramsey, the torture chamber guy, giving his word and never harms Sansa. And he uh, says, "I'll be forever in your debt." Yeah, yeah. And and uh, to me, there's there's something that's interesting going on there. Okay, let's let's imagine that Roos or that Littlefinger is after some revenge on Roos. It would fit his plan really well if Roos is somehow removed. Ramsay, again, we have to remember that Littlefinger doesn't know Ramsay's a psycho, so you have to remove that from the equation because we're only dealing with what Littlefinger knows. So Littlefinger removes Roos somehow, maybe with Sansa's help, because he's already talked up the angle of revenge with her. Ramsay is now Lord of Warden of the North, Lord of Winterfell, and the Dreadfort, etc. However all these titles fall out. Ramsey will have Littlefinger will have him as an ally, who's already in his debt, so to speak. Because and, and from Littlefinger's perspective, he would think that this would put someone in his debt. I just gave you the daughter of Sansa, this beautiful girl who's the blood of Winterfell. Like, yeah, you owe me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and most reasonable people would feel a little indebted to that. So he's assuming that at least this guy isn't a total crazy person. Well, he's wrong, but he doesn't know <laughs> that. And 
He might even think that, well, if this guy is more ambitious, if I, if he, even if he finds out that it has anything to do with taking his father out, he might be grateful for that, too, because I've made him the Lord of Winter. You know, now he's yeah, the Warden yeah. of the North and all that. So I think there is something to that, and it all kind of fits. Littlefinger's plan, he's not putting Sansa at that much risk if his plan is to just make good, really good friends with Ramsay and take out Roos. Uh, of course, the, again, the, the fly in his pudding is... Ramsay really is a psycho, and that could throw the whole thing off. And Roos is right to be suspicious of Littlefinger. I love yeah, their yeah. interactions. Roos is just constantly like, yeah, I opened that message, because <laughs> why are you getting messages from the Queen in the middle of the night? You know, yeah. you, just, you just said you're abandoning them, you know, and you're going to make, uh, so I'm your new ally? Is it really? He's like, yeah. But Littlefinger doesn't directly answer him at any point. He's like, any ambitious move is a gamble, you know? <laughs> it's like, like you did with Rob Stark, when he's like, turn, kind of changes the subject. It's really, he's very... This is def- what Littlefinger always does. He deflects, yeah, defle- yeah. yeah. So, so again, he's, he's up to something. I don't think that this just alliance with the North is exactly what he had. He's like, look how powerful. Last time the North and the Vale got together, they took down the greatest dynasty that, you know, that the world's ever seen or whatever. It's really just like talking, he's just, he's just trying to highlight the good parts and he's just like, I don't worry about these other <laughs> issues. Don't worry about how untrustworthy I am. Don't worry about the fact that I want to kill you because you killed Catelyn. Don't worry about that Sansa wants to kill you because you <laughs> killed my brother. <laughs> don't worry about the fact that there's all these time bombs around you that you're aware of, but we're putting new ones in. Because Roos is very careful, very cautious, and obviously very intelligent, very cunning. And a guy like him who knows... It's, one, it's, it's an interesting point about people who are willing to go really far. Willing, people who are willing to do anything. People who are ruthless, basically. Who are extremely ruthless. Is really ruthless people, they know what ruthless people are like. So they're suspicious of other people's ruthlessness. Because they have a hard time understanding what unruthless people are like they kind of tend to we all kind of tend to have our own personal bias and we all tend to think about things through our own you know our own view the way we look through our own eyes and i can't you know it's the same thing with ruthless people they don't know what it's like to not be ruthless so they're suspicious of non-ruthless people as if they were just as ruthless uh, or maybe not just not to that same degree but but to a certain point so Roos is right to be suspicious of Littlefinger, as we know and Littlefinger on the other hand, isn't expressing much worry about Roos, which we know he's smarter than that. Of course he doesn't fully trust Roos Bolton. <laughs> why, why would he? Why would anyone? So that's a really, really interesting situation. And uh, I will once again make a small uh, reference to the books here. This is, not, this is very different than what's happening in the books. So that's part of why it's so exciting for me as well, is because I have no idea what's coming. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know how Stannis is going to get involved with this. I like it in a lot of ways, better in, in some ways too. We'll, I'll talk more about that in the book to show episode, but I'll just I'll just uh, give you that teaser for now. Yeah, I can see uh, we got on a lot of different tangents there because a lot's happening there. But I can easily see Theon killing Roos or and or Ramsay, mm. uh, whether it was part of Littlefinger's plan or not. In fact, I can. This is what I can see. I can see Littlefinger's plan coming together. I can see that Sansa poisons Roos's food. You know what I mean? She's got the servants are all on her side. She's been involved in poisoning before. I could just see something along that lines coming up. And then, ha, it worked. We did it. We got rid of Roos, and now Ramsay's in charge of North. And then Theon stabs Ramsay in the back. I'm like, oh, crap, now everything's falling apart again. And then Stannis shows up and sees Winterfell, and Littlefinger's plan falls apart. 
So uh, a question that was asked, or at least uh, by two two different listeners, phrased slightly differently. Vincidius and the Dream Cloud Project both asked, what does Baelish get out of his alliance with Bolton? Well, we've spoken to some of that. The possibility of revenge is one of the main potentials there. But the other possibility is if, along those lines, if Roos, if a dead Roos is part of Littlefinger's plan, he also gets to... By doing that, he also potentially gets to win Sansa back in his good graces, assuming that she's upset with him for doing this to him, to her at all. She might just be real, be, come around and be like, "Yeah, he was right. I got my revenge. That all worked out." But she might, because Ramsay's so awful, she might blame Littlefinger for putting her in this spot. But if Littlefinger does the right thing, or the right thing, meaning takes out Roos or helps take out Roos and gets Sansa kind of in a better position. From his perspective, that could work out nicely and make Ramsey, both Ramsey and Sansa, sort of, uh, you know, in a, in a place where they'd be, they'd have some gratitude towards Littlefinger because they both have, they both have advanced and gained because of things that he did, which would make them a good ally for him for whatever else he has in mind. Now, you had a question that we talked about offline. What is Littlefinger's end game in general? You know, I would say that he he. he King is out of the question because of his bloodlines and how people are. But Hand of the King, maybe. is Maybe maybe he wants to reach that high, or maybe he just wants to be as lord of as many things as possible. What, what's your, at this point in the story, do you have any idea what Littlefinger's, what he's after? Is he just really ambitious and doing what he can, or is he does he have something more specific? I don't know, even since, you know, we, we talked about it, and, you know, I kind of pose it, and he's going for King, and you're like, well, that's kind of unrealistic, but Hand of the King, you know, in my mind, how much higher can he get? He's already the Lord of of the Vale, and Harrenhal's, it's sort of like, of that's like the seat big of, part the of the Riverlands. Riverlands yeah, he's not, he's not in charge of the Riverlands. And now he's maneuvering to gain power in Winterfell, and, uh... I feel like there's it's hard to go higher. There's not really a position. Before all this, he was master of coin. He was like on the king's council. Like mm-hmm. the only, I think at first I said the only step up from where he is is king. But there is hand of the king. That's like a step up that is an actual king that maybe is more realistic. Except <clears throat> you point out to me the scene with Varys and Tyrion, how you know they can never rule. Because uh, they find us repulsive. Right. And Littlefinger right. is in a similar boat. And, <laughs> right. Maybe not repulsive, but still not of royal or royal enough blood. He's not a fighter like people who are like, you know, how yeah. they like to follow strength. People who are like the, the great warriors always yeah. get people to follow them, and he's not even a, so, a, a little warrior. <laughs> I still started to reconsider a few things. Uh, I still, at this point, I still don't think it's unrealistic for him to be going for king. And here's a couple reasons why. One, I feel like, again, I've only read the first book, but I feel like in the first book, they were trying to present him as a capable man. Not just shrewd and savvy, but physically capable. He was playing with the knife, threw it against the wall. Him and Ned had to go across these cliffs to get to the meeting with Caitlin, you know what I mean? I feel like it's not, and especially at this point in, in the show, still he's being presented as sort of like a lordly leader of men. And I can see him on a horse with an army amassed, charging into battle against the Lannisters when it's six to one and it can't lose anyway. You know what I mean? And, and that might be enough to prop him up, you know, when he's got the support of all these different families and houses behind him uh, with having maneuvered with wealth and so on and so on. Still a stretch for sure. But the other factor I was considering, Tyrion wasn't that far from ruling. If Tyrion had played the game a little better, if he could have stuck that up a little longer, 
Jamie can't inherit. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was made Hand of the King and did a good job. He did win the respect of many people. He proved himself in battle twice. Like, and they still hated him. True, true, <laughs> except I don't know who they is. I, like, the population, just in right. general. But people I, don't like him because of who he is. But Even had he, he inherited a, they, the throne. But part of why they didn't like him wasn't just because he was a midget. It's because he was a Lannister. He was being blamed. All the things going wrong being put on him. Remember, he kind of detected that. Braun pointed out to him. He's like, oh, man, this is bullcrap. I saved these people. If it had been spun differently, if he had supporters, if Tywin had said, good job, my son, you can keep being Hand of the King. Here's a medal. Your head of the daughter, if he had been propped up and been presented better, like he deserved to be, he might have been. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm skeptical. Even Tywin said. I mean, that's why Tywin didn't even want to give him Casterly Rock, you know, because it, it, it's just he's just no one would respect him, and no one would. It's just just Westeros. Except, Westeros is just too xenophobic and racist and, and prejudiced against against uh, people like Tyrion. Uh, it's just, it's the same, it's, just, it's, it's along the same lines of why they would never accept Littlefinger, even though Tyrion has the actual bloodlines. It's just that he is not kingly. And he's uh, not, he's yeah. not, he's, he's part of the dynasty, but he, like you said, a big thing against him is that no one else, is that he didn't even have the support of his own family. And that would go a long way if the, he'd had the support of his family. Of course, to have support of his family in terms of being king, there'd have to be, you know, a lot of other people would have had to die first, but. Are there, by the way, I don't want to go on too big of a tangent, but, uh, it, the throne Especially would not pass to the throne would never pass to him anyway though because it the, the throne was the Bara- in battle. No, it couldn't even because the throne would be the throne is 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 Baratheon, not Lannister. Right, but it's it used to be Targaryen and due to battle well, now but, it's Targaryen. Oh, you're saying the Tyrion could conquer? Yeah. Mm, yeah, I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think he could because again I don't think he could I don't think he would ever be able to get that much of an army because people wouldn't follow. Yeah, it's maybe possible Tyrion could. couldn't conquer, but Littlefinger could conquer. And in the same way that it might be hard to accept Littlefinger, uh, these are like unfair reasons. This is old school mentality that is poor for society. But the fact is, they want a white man, right? Yeah. Uh, a six foot tall white man, yeah. not a midget, not. Uh, not a, a, a six foot tall white man with royal blood. Yeah. <laughs> it gets more and more specific, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there's all these these things will exclude Littlefinger and Tyrion, but they would also exclude a woman. Yep. But that precedent was set already in, in Westerosi history too. Has there ever been a woman king? No Targaryen woman ever ruled. When when there was or a woman, queen, when, when there so. was a woman set to take the throne, it became civil war because they didn't. No one wanted yeah, it. Yeah. Enough and people. Certainly not accepting Cersei either. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so that's yeah. Cersei the precedent for that. I think it would be the same thing if, if if Tyrion ever like found himself on the throne, he would have that problem of of people just not accepting him as king. They'd just be like, Nah, that's not my king. People are stupid. Yeah, yeah, they are. I'm glad, I'm glad Doran Martell is in charge of Doran. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on. That's a bit of a tangent. Let's talk about. Oh, actually, one last thing about the North. Very interesting potential. Roos and Ramsay both know that Bran and Rickon are alive as well. Is there any way for Ramsay right. and Theon knows, too? Because Theon was in the room when they talked about it. Is there any way... Well, Sansa... you got to think there's a decent chance Sansa will, will, will find that out at some point. That's, that either Theon, maybe even Ramsay, will mention that to her. I don't think Roos is going to spill the beans, but... I wonder if maybe Sam will be part of... An excursion to Winterfell, who also knows, and maybe that information will be confirmed or, or acted on, or uh, that's entirely hmm. possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, we got to talk about Volantis. Our last scene of the episode, we have Tyrion and Varys. They're they're having some of their own identity struggles, and but a lot has been addressed prior. You look like you have something you wanted to say. I about did. This. I did. I forgot there was another key thing. No, before this, there was another thing that happened at Winterfell when they first showed up, and. 
Santa is introduced to Roos, and he steps aside. My son Ramsey, Ramsey kisses her hand. Oh, the Miranda! The camera pans over. I forgot about three Miranda. Three women. Yeah. And I, I thought I recognized one of them as having been Theon's mistress or whatever in the past. You mean, you mean Ramsey's mistress? Yeah. Who did I say? Theon. Sorry, Theon? Ramsey. Yeah, yeah, Ramsey. But there were two other girls. Maybe they're just random. But that was a very. Those were the other two girls that did the like getting naked in front of Theon thing. That, okay. Like, tried to you know when they cut his thing off. So those were some of Ramsey's. Girls, I forgot I that's guess. another like one that, was, yeah, and the one was his lover. So that plot yeah. point I feel is being planted there—a character that would be reminding of she didn't seem happy about Sansa. Yeah, I had that in my notes here, that. and we somehow skipped over yeah. it. But yeah, that is that. That's I was a little. I wonder about that too because I think a lot of viewers would probably even forget that Miranda even existed, and would be like, "Who were those women?" But that's who they were: Miranda and the other two women whose names I don't recall. One was Ramsey's girlfriend that helped him in the hunt when they were hunting that girl, and that gross scene when Ramsey's kind of introduced as the replacement to Joffrey. It's right after Joffrey's death. So more of that continuing on. So that's that's a big open question. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll see more of that soon. So Volantis, Tyrion and Varys in their box. Tyrion is going stir crazy would be by being in there. He really has to get out. Varys is like, look, you're an idiot. <laughs> Stay in the box. Stay in the box, man. And Varys was right. <laughs> it was he, Tyrion was kind of right in that, like the odds of what happening happened were pretty unlikely. That was a, a pretty amazing coincidence. Volantis is a huge city, and Tyrion stumbles into Jorah in this one brothel. But that's George wrote it that way too. So it's not some some random coincidence the showrunners decided to make up. So we have more interesting minor allusions to identity and service. The slaves, they all have their identities yeah. tattooed yeah. on their face, their role, their job, and how the slave masters are mentioned as being very organized. And But then we see this priestess of R'hllor. Very interesting scene. Sean, what are your thoughts on that? I thought this was a really, really uh, provocative moment. Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't decide if this was just a, kind of a random happening or if this is the introduction of a new character. Uh, I, f- I feel like after Tyrion gets kind of captured by Jorah there, it's a little less likely to be a recurring character. Although maybe not. Maybe Varys is still there and he'll have to interact with that girl. I don't know. It did seem odd how she seemed like, stop and take note of Tyrion up there. Uh, One person suggested that maybe she just heard him, but I don't I, I don't think so. I think there's more to it, yeah. I At first I thought it was... It seemed like she did. Except it seemed like a stretch of all this crowd and all these people in the middle of her own speech. But... I considered it, I'm pretty sure there was a moment before that moment where she stopped and looked at him, where Varys, like, shh, try to hush <laughs> And Tyrion's drunk all the time, and arrogant. Maybe he was being a little too loud, and drawing a little too much attention to himself, and maybe she did hear him. Uh, maybe she felt his presence, maybe she's magical, we've seen other magical... Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is a uh, priestess of Valor, we've seen so, her do yeah. magic things, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure, it, it definitely seemed interesting. And it, there was a, a good line in there, was it a line that Varus had to Tyrion when he says, you know, someone is getting the uh, respect or attention or whatever of priests both the priests and, and the, the prostitutes? prostitutes. This is not, not yeah, a character this is to be... showing that she's such a big deal. Yeah, Danny, because Tyrion says that. He says, you didn't tell me we were going to see the Savior. Yeah. You know, he didn't realize that, how, how, that Danny was being viewed like that. And that's very interesting that Danny is not only seen as uh, this liberator but literally as a savior like she's this religious figure and that is a totally higher she's already like raised really high up and now she's just some of these people are just putting her on an even higher platform which tends to happen in the real world people there's this ideal about a person that you've never actually seen that people just talk about them and it's just like the it's like a telephone game 
her, she gets bigger and bigger the more people talk about her. The more the rumors spread, the, the, the bigger the legend and the story gets. And Danny is actually capable of living up to this because she really does have dragons. Mm-hmm. And she really might be some sort of holy savior. Uh, it's possible supernatural things are real in this world. So it, it could be. But... So that gets Tyrion's a little more interested, but still he has his needs. He still is more interested in going to the brothel. But first, there's this very curious mention of Grayscale. Again, Grayscale is mentioned, and that's just too many times in too many different places for it not to mean something. What do you think? What do you think? I mean... I don't know. In fact, I wanted to ask, when did Melisandre come upon Stannis? At what point did they become... It's not really said. Is she the one that saved Shireen? Is that possible? Or it, it, maybe it's not really said exactly, but... Uh, I don't think so, because Shireen... It's it, it said that Shireen had her grayscale in the cradle, and I don't think Melisandre's been around them that long, for like 10 years, because Shireen's about 10. Uh, so I don't think so, but it is possible. That's, it's possible. I'm leaning no, though. It is... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know where they could be going with that. Is grayscale... Is someone going to... Is it something you're born with? Is it like a disease? You can that catch spreads? it. It's a disease that spreads. Yeah, it's it. You slowly turn to stone. It, it turns your like in your, your organs and your everything to slowly turn to stone. So like you stop your body stops functioning yeah. normally, and but you're but the but they people live on. They're kind of zombie like. What if your heart's made of stone anyway? Are you immune? No. <laughs> <laughs> you just made a big joke there that you didn't realize. Okay. <laughs> um, so. It, we'll just have to see. Like, again, I don't know what's coming with this. It's not something that's really big in the books either. So, Or, or rather, it's something that's kind of up to the same moment. So it's it's an open question. So, but it's very curious because it gets mentioned a few times. So I'm eager to, to see what they do with it. Um, again, it's one of these things I'm a little anxious about. I don't know where they're going with it. I know there's a lot of, there's going to be some characters that are going to die this season that don't die in the books. And these kind of, you know, some, I guess maybe Grayscale is going to hit somebody. Is it's fatal as far as we know. I mean, Shireen survived it, but you saw like Gilly's reaction to it. She's talking about how yeah. like her father took these, like took them out in the woods and killed killed them because they had it and had to isolate them. He talked. She, he talked. She talks about how they were isolated so they wouldn't I spread. I guess to keep it from spreading. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that is um, just imagine you have all these things. So many things are building. You have not only is the devastation, you know, the potential for this horrible n- northern force to sweep down with their supernatural army in the winter. There's the potential for the dragons just blowing things up because Danny can't control them. But you also have the faith is rising. You have this huge potential for, for zealots becoming big. And then you have this major disease being alluded to. And you have all these different crazy alliances that may or not work. It's a lot happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really, really... I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of... It's almost, it's almost repetitive to say that about Game of Thrones. Of course there's a lot happening. <laughs> but there's these... But what's different is that these large-scale events are coming that seem to be building up. It's not just about these squabbles about between families. and but Even the throne is a pretty big thing, but it's getting things are starting to ramp up to be an even higher scale than that, where we have multiple thrones being involved, multiple kingdoms and multiple places that are all involved against each other and potentially against these forces of, of nature and of... And of, and of other things supernatural not just nature <laughs> forces of nature and of supernature mm-hmm. all coming together so it's just really I, I see a shift compare that towards you know season one where you start off and you've got you've got winterfell nice characters together and you got king's landing eventually and it spreads out but really you've just got three kind of three locations you got king's landing you got winterfell and you got danny over in essos and yeah. then it just 
but but even when it starts to spread out, it's mostly still a bunch of character conflict. Now it's just like the scale is getting bigger. You still have the character conflicts, but you, now you have this, you know, world altering forces and, and continent shaping forces that are all coming together. No idea how they're all going to go. Though interplay between such massive forces is hard to predict. Sounds like a Littlefinger's kind of game, chaos. Yeah, by the way, that's another thing that <laughs> I was thinking about too. Is it, uh, however, exactly things play out in Winterfell? In my mind, it's, it seemed like he was taking a lot of chances. You know, like, what if Sansa doesn't go along with this? What if Ramsay does something crazy? What if Roose is suspicious? What you know? What if Stannis shows up with an army? What, all these things. And in my mind, like, well, all right, Littlefinger will thrive on all that. He, <laughs> yeah, he, he'll he find a way. Had, right, he probably has all these if-then scenarios. He's plotted out. You know, if Ramsay does something crazy, I'll do this. If Sansa doesn't play along, da 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 no one else has all that plotted out. Yeah. He, you know, he has a backup plan and a plan C mm-hmm. and all these other... He, he's initiating these things that might seem like or turn out to be chaotic, but he's he has control over them. He's making them happen. He's pushing the direction they go on. He has plans for if they don't pan out properly, whereas other people don't. They don't even know that he's doing it or what his follow-up might be and on and on. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, it's, I want to have a certain amount of trust in him. But geez, just such a risk of taking with Sansa. Don't do yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, as, as you point out, one, one little detail that is important to mention as far as you, you, you point to a potential conflict with Bolton armies and Stannis armies. Well, Stannis was telling John he wants to move quickly. He wants to get out of the. Yeah, out of, he wants to move yeah. before winter comes down. He wants to get moving. And part of his move hurry. Before the sun comes down. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Part of his hurry is he knows that. If he's supposedly this savior that Melisandre says he is, he needs to get the North in order and behind him before the big the big wave comes from the North. Like, if the others are coming, the White Walkers are coming, Stannis can't still be embroiled in some campaign against the Boltons. He's got to get that stuff taken care of as soon as possible. He's got, he's got to be yeah. ready. You know, you, they can't... He he's understands why it's important to move quickly. And that's part of why I think he was moving so quickly with the with the Mance Raider thing and his other things is that he, yeah. he doesn't have time. He's like, well, the others are coming. I gotta I gotta move. I don't have time. I gotta gotta get this done. He's gotta he he's got plans and he knows that time is not on his side necessarily. Well it's not necessarily on Ruth Bolton's side either. <laughs> Which is interesting. They're both kind of in a hurry, so they're both kind of having to push. But let's get, we, we went on a big tangent there. Let's get back to Tyrion and Jorah. Brothel scene, final, basically the final scene of the episode. Tyrion isn't really himself throughout a lot of the things. He's depressed. He's a bit suicidal. He's in despair. But he kind of starts to show a little of his old self here. When he, the way he's got his guys repartee with Varys, and the way he just, you know, comes back to that brothel guard. He's like, it's good luck to rub a dwarf's head. He's like, it's better luck to rub a dwarf's cock. You know, he's, <laughs> the guy clearly wasn't going to be happy by that. But he's not. He's, he's brave, you know. Not a, not worried about what he's, he's. He's as he in his own words, his mouth gets him into trouble sometimes. So he's showing he still has that skill. He talks the 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 prostitute into you know wanting to sleep with him, and then he's. What do you think about it, this this reaction to him? He just realizes he can't he can't do it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's an another identity crisis, sort of. Like, who is yeah. this guy? <laughs> I was wondering how much of that was. Uh... I don't know where they're going with that. I wonder if it's sort of like when he even said, well, what am I going to do in my spare time? Maybe you'll focus on, you know, like uh, politicking or pulling yourself together or whatever. Maybe it's, I don't know how psychologically his state of depression could be affecting that in the first place. Maybe he's drinking too much, you know. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was a, a slightly interesting turn for them to take there with that. Uh, yeah. We'll and... see how it plays out. I also was slightly wondering whether or not that woman was just random woman in this brothel or she might be introduced as a character too she they seem to flesh her out more than just 
you know, random prostitute. You know? I wondered about maybe he was just thinking of Shay, and that would be why he couldn't perform. And, yeah, uh, just too many of the yeah. memories. It's just too. And... She picked out a dark-haired girl. Yeah. Uh, she didn't look like Shay, but she was kind of look more like Shay than the blonde girl. Or by yeah, by far. Yeah, and this is, you wonder if that was if he gravitated towards her because of that at all. So that I think that's pretty interesting. Tyrion is kind of maybe trying to regain his identity, trying to get back to who he is, but maybe he's also picking up some new bits of identity along the way. And we see Jorah from a distance at first, looking real haggard and depressed. He has maybe a bit of an identity crisis because he doesn't—he doesn't belong anywhere anymore. No one to serve. He's a knight. Knights usually, you know, serve, swear their sword to somebody and and fight for them. And he's got—he's got nothing. He's got no responsibility, but he still is submitted to Daenerys, even because he's still in love with her. He's still, you know, he still has, he still believes that he can, you know, that maybe he can do something for her. He's still pining for her, I suppose, and. He lets Tyrion finish peeing and says, I'm going to take you to the queen. Now, of course, that... How do you think Tyrion receives that line? Oh, yeah, he certainly he thinks he's off to Cersei to get yeah. his head chopped off. Yeah, but, he's, uh, that's the, he's, he's real worried about that. I but I'm sure that he's... Jorah's going to take him to, uh, to Danny. Yeah. Although I do wonder like if Jorah... <clears throat> I wonder if Jorah is going to take him to Danny like, ha. This is the man responsible for your family's death. He's the one that I was spying for. You should, you know, that or you know, I, I wonder if Jorah realizes what he's doing. You know, and where's that going to leave Varus? <laughs> Varus is yeah. like, where did Tyrion go? Be left behind? Is he going to follow on anyway? Yeah, is he going to keep going to Marine, or is he going to just like look for Tyrion, or what's he yeah. doing? Yeah, <laughs> uh, one way or the other. Yeah, I can't help but wonder. I, I didn't start thinking about it till just now, because in my mind, it's like, ah, Tyrion's getting what he wanted anyway. You know, like it's you know, he's not. It's not like. Varus was afraid that he was going to get his head chopped off and brought back to, to King's Landing, which is certainly what's going through Tyrion's mind right now. No, you're just going to Danny anyway. But you might be going to Danny to get your head chopped off. Jorah doesn't necessarily know what Tyrion's motivations are right now. Uh, I feel like whatever delay there was... Sometimes I don't know what the timeline is, and I also feel like sometimes communication travels magically in this world... But it seemed like there was some sort of delay for Cersei's messages to get to Littlefinger because he wasn't at the Vale or whatever. I, 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 can Jorah know, like, how much quicker could word have traveled than Tyrion and Varys about Tywin's death? Especially to Jorah, who isn't seeking the information out. Yeah. He doesn't have a it connection. It seems unlikely that he knows yet. Yeah. He maybe has heard, but yeah, that's pretty. Valantis is very far What does from he think Westeros. Tyrion is doing there? What, what, in Jorah's mind, why in the world is Tyrion? You, yeah, you and wonder if it was just a, yeah. a snap decision. He's like, well, there he is. There's Tyrion Lannister. Holy crap. <laughs> I'll figure it out later. This is my end. Yeah. You know? I think yeah. He, I, I, it had to be a spur of the moment decision. He couldn't sit there and just strategize. Like, well, let's see if I capture Tyrion. But he was probably drunk already at the yeah, time. Yeah. He was sitting there in a brothel drinking. He was probably, probably is. He probably slightly sobered up seeing him like, whoa, what, what is going on? And he just had to make a, a quick decision there and went with it. Um... So yeah, it's very interesting, and I I think you're right. I think that Tyrion will probably still end up with Danny. We see there's hints of that in the trailers. Um, we don't, of course, the the how and the and and the journey itself will be interesting. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. And I'm very curious about what where where Varys fits into this. I don't I don't really don't know if it's gonna... also another thing I kind of look forward to is we see characters developed and we kind of get to know them and we see them struggle through different scenarios 
and that's part of what's interesting is to see them kind of transplanted and put into new a new uh, situation to have to deal with um, and interact with other characters we've seen developed otherwise. Well, there's another chance for that. It'll be neat to see Jorah interact with Tyrion. I bet that'll be some good dialogue. That's the next pairing. Yeah, we get yeah. to see them together for a little uh, while. <laughs> and I wouldn't mind if Varus is part of that, too. I feel like that would be, be interesting. That would be interesting because for a while, Varus you know, was specifically feeding information to Jorah and back and forth, or the other way around. And that might present... That would be an interesting confrontation, potentially. <laughs> I was even thinking of it kind of abstractly before exactly... Like how uh, Danny would manage having Tyrion at court, you know. But I just now started to think of how entertaining it will be to quit <laughs> back and forth with Grey Worm and uh, Dario and, Dario and, and maybe so Barristan on. or whoever else. I can imagine Dario and Tyrion might get along, or whether or not they do. Yeah, Barristan and Tyrion will have some amount of history between them already. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it now. I hope it does. I, 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 it was like this thing I was wondering about before. Now I'm like, oh yeah, this is happening. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Shifting my gear a little. So one, uh, one another question from uh, a listener before we wrap up and have some credits. <coughs> listener Anthony Pierce wants to know, do you think Tyrion will teach Danny how to train her dragons? Do you think he'll be the, <laughs> the, uh, the path to that? Well, someone's got to do it now that Janos is dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it is a tough question to answer because... Maybe, because Tyrion does seem to have more knowledge about dragons than just about anybody else, but it's not like he's an expert. I don't know if he know, has that specific knowledge, but I think there's a good chance that's where it goes. Just from process of elimination, who else is going to do it? You know, yeah. Either she figures it out on her own, some new character is introduced, or it's Tyrion. I don't really see another option. So I'd have to say, yes, I think, that is, I think that's what we're looking at. So... That is all we have for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, be, as you saw, we answered a lot of different questions throughout the episode. If you would like to have your name mentioned and your question a, uh, answered on the show, make sure to hit us up on Twitter, at Westeros History, or WesterosHistory at gmail.com, or on Facebook, Facebook slash Westeros History. You can also visit our website, HistoryOfWesteros.com, where we have all sorts of goodies and ways to support the show. You can support the show by making purchases at Amazon.com. You can take a free 30-day Audible trial and get one free download. All these things support the show without costing you anything more than you would have paid normally. Uh, if you want to go more direct, you can always press the donate button and just go straight to that. The old, the old-fashioned, simple way. Send us whatever you feel is appropriate to help us make more episodes. Whatever you think is appropriate, we'll appreciate it, and we'll keep making episodes. We'll keep them coming. We're really enjoying going through the season with you guys and can't wait to see how things develop the rest of the way. We're just getting started, only three episodes in. We're about to pass the leaks period. We haven't watched ahead. We don't know what's coming in the next episode, but it'll get a little more interesting when no one comes ahead, no one is ahead of the game. We're not going to have any, we're not going to be worried about spoilers as much. That'll be nice. And we'll be really looking forward to discussing the next episode with you guys. So until next week, Valor Morgellus. Thanks for coming back, Sean, and we'll see everybody next time.